Alrighty, hello everybody. Just uh, waiting a moment for Richard to arrive. Uh, should not be long, I wouldn't think. And so I'm going to awkwardly kill time as we await his arrival, which is one of my uh, specialties, meaning awkwardly killing time at the beginning of interactive podcast-style appearances. There he is. Hello, Richard. Hey, how are you? I'm doing okay. So uh, let's just jump right in. You know, this is not strictly uh, pertinent to what we planned on talking about, but I feel like we could probably figure out a way to make some sort of a segue. Um, but I just read your um, sub-stack from a few days ago, on um, why you hate pronouns more than genocide, uh, exactly, which I have to yeah. say is is one of the uh, is one of the better titles for a Substack post that I've seen. Thank lately. you. You know, you know the importance of marketing. I do. Um, sometimes when I'm trying to figure out what the best title is, I kind of despair because I know if I don't have a good title or headline, then I've pretty much just ruined the entire article. <laughs> Even though I spend about you know half of one percent of the amount of energy that I do on the headline that I do on everything else, um, anyway. Uh, so there's one people should read it um, if they're intrigued by <laughs> that headline. But uh, basically, it's just um, your attempt to analyze why it is that you are driven to focus on issues that you acknowledge are not in a cosmic sense as important as other issues. So, for example, wokeness, as you concede, and this is sort of a shorthand way to refer to it, right? But you can see that wokeness is not as important an issue as genocide. Um, And yet you find yourself focusing more on wokeness and you go through a whole and a litany of uh, reasons for that. And it's not, and it's not just about yeah. me. It's like everyone's obsessed with the pro and anti-wokeness people. So right, right. But you use, your, you use yourself too. as sort of an illustrative example. Exactly, yeah. Um, but there's, there's one point at which you say, quote, uh, declaring pronouns represents the convergence of perhaps the three things I hate most, conformity, an acceptance of androgyny, and lack of self-awareness. Now, when I read that, I thought to myself, you know, I guess I can relate in a way. Um, among the things that I definitely feel like I probably hate the most are conformity and lack of self-awareness. And, you know, people could probably find a way to twist that around on me and say that I lack self-awareness or that I'm a conformist or whatever. But, you know, okay, but bracketing that. um, And then I see uh, acceptance of androgyny is uh, in your top three things of things you hate. Um, (laughs) And and that I couldn't really relate to as much. Um, You know, I don't feel, even though I can scoff at the latest kind of libs of TikTok excesses that float across the uh, social media transom, I I can't really bring myself to have a kind of level of seething hatred for it in a way that I guess you do. But I I think you actually do something commendable, which is that you say it's just sort of rooted in just sheer instinctive disgust. Um, And, you know, that's... Something there, you know, Martha Nussbaum, the philosopher, 
has done a whole treatise on, on disgust, and there are ways in which that disgust or hatred can actually be marshaled toward something productive, which I think you basically conclude is the case with you in that it's an, uh, it inspires you, meaning that hatred, even if it's a sort of a base instinct, can uh, inspire you to be productive in ways that like genocide might not be able to. Yeah. And I, it also made me think of, a, of an anecdote um, there was this left-wing journalist, uh, Andrew, uh, Alexander Coburn, who uh-huh. um, wrote for years at The Nation. Uh-huh. Uh, and you know, today he'd probably be canceled for whatever reason because his, one of his specialties was sort of dismantling liberal pieties. Uh-huh. Um, and one thing that he famously asked all Nation interns um, was, is your hatred pure? <laughs> <laughs> And, um, you know, if they kind of stammered and couldn't just say yes, then he knew that they probably weren't going to make it make out especially well in the field. And believe it or not, um, Ed Miliband, who at one point was the leader of the Labour Party of the UK and ran um, in the 2015 election as the head of the Labour Party against David Cameron, he was a nation intern. Mm. And uh, Alexander Colbert asked him that very question and uh, Ed Miliband just kind of stammered and said, you know, I don't hate anybody. And so uh, <laughs> Alexander Coburn remarked that he, then he knew that Ed Miliband would be a perfectly acceptable just kind of steward of capitalism in the UK <laughs> yeah. in a way that, you know, obviously Coburn found right. suboptimal. Yeah, the, the, yeah. yeah. I mean, you moti- yeah, you see people who are highly motivated to do stuff. They're often motivated by dislike of other sides. So the conservatives, uh, uh, you know, it's an extreme uh, case of this is, you know, owning the libs. Um, and, you know, as far as my dislike of androgyny, I should probably clarify that it's not like I hate anyone who like, you know, happens to be gay or like men who can't play sports. You know, I'm not very athletic. I was pretty bad at, you know, I was like, well, I was the last one picked in gym class. I mean, I'm pretty, pretty bad at sports. So I mean, I have some of these non-masculine traits or I hate women who, you know, fix things or something like that. You know, I just, when I say I dislike androgyny, I dislike it as sort of a political ideology. I dislike like people going around saying, okay, you know, men should, you know, there should, men and women should be encouraged to be as much as like, like as possible, or, you know, there should be, we should just see gender as a spectrum. We shouldn't see, you know, men and women as these two, as these two, you know, different poles of sort of humanity that both have something uh, important to contribute. So it's, it's the, it's really gender ideology more than just hatred of androgyny. And so, uh, you know, I, I would, it's, uh, you know, that's important to clarify. And then the, um, you know, the, the question of, um, uh, you know, something productive. I mean, I do, I do want to um, say, and I might write a follow-up piece um, along these lines. Is that like it, this is not to say that like my belief in like you know social, more socially conservative uh, sort of norms and uh, is you know on gender and sexuality and stuff doesn't mean I don't think there are any good reasons for it as far as you know uh, good um, you know outcomes for society. I do. I mean, I just I said you know just to a certain extent I don't care, but I can make the argument that I do think you know these these uh, more uh, taking a more conservative position on these issues is good, and maybe maybe I'll write sort of the uh, that. Uh, that article for the next one. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but my reading of your article was that, yes, obviously your dis- dislike, for example, androgyny is rooted in your dislike for the wider ideology associated with it. But you also say that it's rooted in just an aesthetic taste, well, it, um, it, which, okay, which I thought was separate from the ideology. Like, for example, you say, quote, one of my deepest instincts is that I like men who look like 
who look and act like men yeah. and women who look and act like yeah. women. Like, so and what I, is, I, is I, that would put, I would put, I would put that more as a positive. Like I like, like when I see, you know, uh, when I see traits that are, um, when I see a man or a woman, you know, with, with, uh, with physical features and traits that are sort of the idealized for their sex. Yeah. I think it's a good thing. It doesn't, I, I, I should, you know, I should, I should be more careful to distinguish. It's like, yes, I like appreciate these things like more than I do others. Now, if people don't have those traits, I don't hate those people. So I, I don't definitely don't want people think that I, I have like an inherent hatred of those people but i do but my appreciation for these sort of you know this gender binary uh does lead me to hate when the, when it's being tried to make it made into an ideology also when it's done in a very fake way when some you know with a sort of when it's a uh the tr you know the trans thing becomes a trend and it increases you know a thousand percent in, in five years so that's where sort of the hatred comes if you know if i felt that i actually just hated people for like being gay or or being ugly or whatever you know i would i, I would feel bad about myself i would try to fix that but it's the ideology that inspires the hate so when you see like a woman who's sort of a masculine presenting truck driver or something, or a man who's a slightly effeminate no, you know, fashion hate, designer, you don't you don't you don't have hatred for them. No, no, exactly. Not no. If if they if they start spotting an ideology that says you know oh you know every you know every, you know this is like something that society should be forced to celebrate and everyone has, should you know be encouraging their kids to try to make them as gender neutral as possible, then you know that leads to hate. But no, just they're living their own lives. I'm not fine with them. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think for me, I don't have strong taste on this range of topics one way or another, you know, aesthetically or otherwise. But on occasion, you know, I remember I, I watched uh, you know, a couple of months ago there was a, uh, a Sky News segment that was done on the shortage of truck drivers in the UK. And they, they profiled the woman who, uh, you know, was one in the minority of truck drivers, obviously, just as a woman. But, you know, I, I've, part of me kind of sees something um, endearing or, or even attractive to, to, women, to men and women who defied traditional gender roles in that way. Again, not to extrapolate it out into any kind of ideology, but it just almost uh, ha suggests a level of, like, uniqueness of spirit or something that in, I, I could often find myself... Appreciating, but then again, I don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get, I get have the same reaction too. I mean, uh, yeah, I think the aesthetic part. I think that you know, I'm trying to also not just talk about myself, but I'm trying to get a, you know a little bit of sort of conservatives and liberals too. I mean, liberals have aesthetics too. It's not just. Uh, conservatives you know the gender part is just one one of it i mean there's just ideas of traditional standards of beauty right like fat swimsuit models i mean it's interesting to think about like why this stuff drives some people you know in one direction and other people in another direction it's not because conservatives have a uh, a deep interest in public health like we know that that's not something they care about when they talk about that swimsuit model so it's, it's interesting i mean just to be honest and like sort of understand like, <laughs> yeah. what's driving our politics and it, it is funny that you point out that they were always enraged by michelle obama having this healthy food program <laughs> yeah. or yeah. just like you know uh or didn't she start like an organic uh garden, garden or something the at the white, white house yeah. and that was horrible and it's yeah, just like yeah, for people who don't remember, this was a big thing. It was like, let's go Brandon of its time. It's like, oh, ha, ha, Michelle's school lunches. So it wasn't like a small thing conservatives criticized. It was like, you know, like talk radio, like all they talked about. Yeah, yeah. It was that, that definitely drove like hours and hours of Rush Limbaugh segments. Um, I, I, you know, just one last point on this because it made me reflect a little bit. Uh, you know, for I was 
fairly, I think, well-known for spending a lot of time focusing on, on Russiagate over the course of the Trump presidency. I don't think you and I have actually, ever actually discussed Russiagate in, in that great of detail. Um, and in fairness, Russiagate is kind of a nebulous thing because its parameters are always expanding and it's hard to even tell what exactly you're referring to when you talk about Russiagate except as just this general th- theory that Trump was colluding with the Russian state in the 2016 election or even afterwards and the kind of attendant political, contra- political and legal controversies associated with that. Um, and I had plenty of arguments as to why I actually did think it was genuinely important for me to focus on. And I stand by those arguments, one of which was that it actually poisoned the well for diplomatic engagement between the U.S. and Russia. It radicalized a lot of the Democratic Party's professional class, you know, its diplomatic corps, the people who are now filling the State Department and whatnot, uh, made them view Russia as with this kind of burning hatred that, of course, would reduce the likelihood that they were going to be able to come to any kind of diplomatic accords with a country that has the world's largest uh, nuclear arsenal. So I thought that that was actually a very significant reason and a defensible reason why I should focus on the subject. But I I do have to admit that there were aspects of Russiagate that drew me to it that were not, you know, in, in in a broader sense, that important yeah. in that I resented the conformity of the kind of the media around it. I resented that a lot yeah. of, you know, d- media types who otherwise kind of portray themselves as edgy and countering of consensus kind of just glommed onto it. I, I resented it. I, 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 there were also slightly more superficial reasons that kind of just generated a visceral hatred in me that compelled me to also, uh, fixate on it. So I think, you know, there was a confluence of motivating factors, but I can't deny that, you know, that, that kind of, uh, again, to yeah. a base hate, hatred instinct was also a contributor. Yeah, I think a lot of us are like that. I think the woke, the anti-wokeness thing is like that. It's just the fact that it's like, it's not like a small cult. It's like taking over everything and people, you know, who, uh, who dislike it or, you know, who see, who see it. And, you know, it, I guess there's nothing wrong with uh, wanting to be part of the current thing, right? It's nothing wrong to say, like, we live in a society. And so right now, you know, we're, um, you know, we have Ukraine, Ukraine is the thing that's going on. So let's talk about Ukraine. It doesn't mean like you shouldn't, you definitely should not be the person who just either reflexively goes with the current thing or goes anti the current thing but like you know just sort of you know that that desire to sort of talk about what everyone else is talking about as long as you um as long as you have you know a well-informed sort of intelligent things to say about it um i don't think there's anything wrong with that so the fact that russia is the biggest you know russia gates the biggest story or one of the biggest stories in the country and we're you know political people you know if if we have something to contribute and that motivates us the fact that you know it's something that high status people are talking about and treating as important yeah i don't think there's i don't think there's anything wrong with that and i you know, and it's like, you know, it's like, and also, you know, I think there's, you know, the other big part of my piece was sort of like, it's ego gratification, right? It's like, you're saying to yourself, I'm Mike Tracy, all these people, you know, the New York Times, the Washington Post, they have all the status, but they're sort of, they have sort of, you know, stupid ideas and they're biased and they think they're just like these super objective people. Well, I sort of, you know, I sort of think I can do their job better than them and let me attack them and like show people why. I think that's healthy. I think that makes you like a good journalist and a good public figure. Yeah. Well, when the Mueller report came out, I did get a shout out in the New York Times 
for going against the grain on Russiagate and having been vindicated. And of course, I was denounced for being haughty or for you know, having that internal monologue as you know, running around just declaring how great I am that I've been vindicated. Yeah. Even though I, yeah, of course, never like used that, that term, that, that phrasing, because it would be self-aggrandizing. But, you know, yeah. I, I mean, when, when you get a shout out, and you know, it, was, it was another place, Rolling Stone, even National Review did something. And, you know, so, I mean, I think you're, you're just deluding yourself if you don't acknowledge that that kind of uh, – get receiving those kind of accolades has a dopamine effect and, you know, can make you feel positive. I don't know. I don't see the point of uh, denying that. And, you know, if I were to deny it, it would, I think people should be suspicious because I'm sort of denying just a basic human instinct. Yeah, I think that's right. And so, yeah, and, and you know, you see this, they're sort of like, you know, pointing out and like sort of Chris said, they're criticizing your internal monologue. Yeah, it's not like, I mean, one of these things that I think I, I hate about these people, and I think that you hate about these people too, is they act like they, they are above all such considerations, right? Like they would deny they have an internal monologue. We are the, you know, we are the high status people. We're the gatekeepers. Uh, we're the one that at least gives you the facts. You know, we, we fact check everything. We're giving good objective, you know, uh, uh, story about guns in America or whatever they issue happens to uh, happens to be and you know that, that i mean and that's impossible no human is you know that neutral or that perfect i think they do some a good job in some ways and terrible a terrible job in others um but yeah i mean the, 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 i think they're they lack the self-awareness and i think uh, you know people like us outside sort of the uh, you know media uh, elite establishment um that's something that drives us to you know to be critical of them yeah, yeah, and, and another side note on this that occurred to me as I was reading the piece, because you know one of the three top things that you cite is, uh, you know, bringing hatred into your life is uh, conformity, right? And I agreed with that, at least on a surface level. But then I got to thinking about it, and I just and I thought, okay, so do I really hate conformity, or do I hate conformity in service, or do do I hate the uh, propensity to conform to things that I don't like? Because I think it has to be that, yeah. Because like, because you know, like, people, it, it, so, yeah, because yeah, like, you know, you could make an argument. Like, I, the kind of kid in high school who would refuse to stand up for the Pledge of Allegiance, he, in a, in a sense, was, you know, uh, taking a stand against conformity. But I always kind of felt felt that was a bit a, a little a little bit lame. Um, so it can't just be conformity as such, right? It's got to be conformity layered on top of other things that you also dislike. I think it's right. I mean, all of us can point to examples like, you know, like littering, like people used to litter a lot more. They don't litter anymore. Part of it is conformity. Right. And I don't think anyone gets mad because people are such conformists. They don't they don't litter when it's uh, convenient. I, I think I think you're right. It, it goes without saying yeah, conformity. You know, if I wanted to be more precise, I'd say conformity, you know, in a stupid direction. Um, yeah. Conformity is, is a human trait. And yeah, we're never bothered by it when it's when it's for something positive. It's actually can be a good thing. Yeah, yeah, and people also say, you know, in these little in these anti woke media cliques, which I'm sometimes included in for whatever reason, even though I don't like remember signing a document that codified my membership in that clique, but whatever, they'll say that there's a similar kind of pressure toward conformity, oh, there, there uh, is, even yeah. within kind of these smaller cultural yeah. subsets. Even it's not society wide, but you're conforming to the kind of predominant sensibility within this clique that you're claimed to be a member of. Yeah, I mean, and you see that with the vaccine stuff. You see that with sort of the uh, the the election fraud stuff. I mean, you know, you, you can um, 
you know, it's very, I think it's very bad if you're paying attention to somebody and, you know, you can always sort of predict where they're going based on, uh, you know, if they're not pissing off their commentators once in a while, like their, 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 their uh, Twitter replies, if they're, if they're people who are replying to them are like always happy, then that's like a, uh, you know, that, that's a, that's a bad sign. Now the, the Twitter replies, I mean, the people go away after a while if like you keep antagonizing them, but you know, you always want to be like, you know, you always want to be antagonizing new people because you never want to have like a crowd and just, you know, always be playing to them because that's the only way you're going to, that's the only way you're going to agree with them on every issue. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I might have mentioned this to you before, but in the couple of months after the 2020 election, when I would be occasionally kind of trying to report on or comment on the different election fraud issues, but the, my, the right wing segment of my followership would be in a total uproar and denouncing me and everything. And, you know, I kind of, I, I wouldn't just do that for its own sake. Like, I wouldn't do something specifically because I desire to enrage a certain subset of my following. But I do think that you're right. If you occasionally end up with that results, it's in a way a positive thing because it shows that you're not just in hock mindlessly to whoever seems to be, you know, comprising a bulk of your followership on any given time. And of course, with social media, I mean, there's a huge problem, I think, with a lot of, quote, influencers and whatever, uh, with uh, this issue of audience capture. So especially on, like, for example, YouTube, if you've developed a a, um, subscriber base over the years, and this doesn't so much apply to me as I have a min- sort of a more minimal YouTube presence. But for others, if that's like your main source of income, right, um, you stand to lose money if you contradict the prevailing views of the people who subscribe to you. So, of course, you're going to have an incentive. Maybe you might try to not succumb to that incentive, but inevitably it's got to get subconsciously implanted into your uh, your psyche. And it's just you know up to you to kind of be as self-aware as possible in trying to uh, counter that. Yeah. And, you know, uh, you know, when you say like you shouldn't, you know, necessarily go out of your way to antagonize people who follow you, I think sometimes, you know, it, it's, it's, it's healthy. I mean, if you're, you're, you know, you want to make sure, you know, it's important to me, like to signal to people that like, you know, I'm a serious person and I'm still my own thinking. So I noticed, you know, like a lot of people who were in my circles on Twitter, this is, you know, this thing has calmed down, but they were anti-vaxxers and the anti-vax arguments were just really, really stupid. And I probably focused more on that, um, you know, than I would have if, if it wasn't like so much like the people I was talking to and the people I was interacting with were into this stuff. Um, so yeah, I, you know, I don't think there's anything. It's, it's like another, you know, motivation to do something that is true and good. And you can, so a few people told me I actually convinced them to get to get vaccinated which was which was pretty funny um and then the um uh what was the other thing you talked about i, I forgot um i mean i think that that that, that about <laughs> uh covers it um oh, let's oh, just I move on to the, the uh yeah. the, the audience oh the audience yeah audience capture sure. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's true. I think there's like different niches you could find. So I think like a lot of people tell me, or maybe some people probably, probably tell you this too. Like one thing I like about you, I don't always agree with you. Uh, but you know, you, you know, you always have an interesting to say and you know, you're, you're, you're independent and you're, you know, you're, you're saying what you think. And so it's like, yeah, some people will like that and that's, and that's good too. I think that like, it's hard to get like super big doing that because I think that like, you know, the biggest audiences go to people who tell people what they want to hear, but there are, you know, enough nonconformists where you can, you can carve out a niche uh, if you do want to be independent. So, you know, that's, that's some optimism for uh, people out there who, who might be doing, might be thinking of a similar career path. Yeah. I mean, that's true. I mean, I don't think that I'm going to be one of the most kind of vaunted, uh, you know, commentator types for journalists 
media personalities, whatever, in the entire country uh, or have the largest following or the largest platform. But, you know, I have enough of a following and enough of a platform that I can do it full time and do it according to my own preferences and schedule and whatever. So, I mean, that's an accomplishment, I would think, unto itself. And it's been accomplished by me at least striving not to just be captured by what I think my audience wants to hear. And it helps that my audience seems to be very diverse anyway. Um, so it's not clear necessarily uh, on every issue anyway that um, I would even know exactly what it is that they would need to hear. I mean, sometimes on certain issues, you know, over time, a certain momentum builds and you, you can predict, but not, not always. Um, okay, so let's go to the... Um, issue of uh, mass shootings in Ukraine. And I, I grant that maybe some people might find this to be a tenuous connection or to, or that connecting the two issues is sort of just uh, like an eye-rolling uh, leap. Um, but, you know, this is... Uh, I, I've more and more become a little annoyed and... Yeah. So in 2012, let me just go back. In 2012, I covered the, the aftermath of the Newtown shooting, the shooting at Sandy Hook, Incredibly gruesome. Uh, I mentioned this on Twitter uh, recently, but I actually went to the funeral of a first grader who was killed um, in Sandy Hook. And unbeknownst to me when I entered the funeral, because it was open to the public, believe it or not, uh, but unbeknownst to me, they, there was an open casket. And so, you know, I saw actually the body of a dead eight year old in a tiny casket. And as you might imagine, it's one of the images that sticks with you. And I also just remember at that time being annoyed with the wider discussion around Sandy Hook because it was, it was dominated by gun control versus no gun control. So, I mean, and, and that when, when people would raise other issues uh, that might have an effect of diminishing the likelihood of these kinds of events happening in the future, they would be accused of just trying to distract from what the core issue was, which is gun control versus non-gun control. Um, and Sandy Hook, I think, actually really catalyzed this trend around you know, having lockdown drills in schools and this kind of thing. Um, and so now, whenever one of these events happens, and inevitably that same sort of bifurcated narrative emerges, you know, gun control versus non-gun control, I tend to want to find ways to circumvent that and maybe kind of elucidate other issues that are potentially relevant. And so my mind was cast back to this documentary, Bowling for Columbine, <laughs> that uh, Michael Moore did in 2002, because, you know, it's maybe a little bit embarrassing to admit, but Michael Moore was really one of the first prominent figures uh, who I followed on the basis of their political views. Like I read Michael Moore's book from around that time. It was called Stupid White Man. It was pretty much, I haven't read it in 20 years, obviously, but it was a, I, my recollection is that it was sort of just a Jeremy ad against the um, Bush administration, Republicans, and maybe some like centrist uh, Democrats who he thought weren't being strong enough in opposing Bush. Um, and, you know, I watched his, his documentaries, and, you know, I obviously wouldn't draw primary inspiration today from Michael Moore. I think he's kind of not always the most coherent uh, politically. Um, but, you know, it, it is the, the case, just given his stature at that time, that um, he had some degree of influence on me in a formative 
stage, mostly around Iraq, I would say, because that was the dominant issue, uh, at least when I was kind of developing a political consciousness. And uh, at the time, Bowling for Columbine, you know, this is pre-Iraq war, but at, at that time, Bowling for Columbine was the most financially successful documentary ever. Um, so, you know, Michael Moore was actually a trailblazer in a way. And um, one of the one aspect of the thesis in that movie was that you can't simply just attribute the prevalence of uh, mass shootings or even just gun violence writ large in the U.S. to the availability of firearms. This was Michael Moore making this case from like a vaguely left-wing or progressive perspective, right? Because he was saying um, that given that the rates of gun ownership in the U.S. and Canada are relatively comparable, I think since then the U.S. has uh, surpassed Canada pretty substantially in having a greater rate of gun ownership. Uh, but nonetheless, in 2002, this was his quantitative point, and he was using that to make a qualitative point about how we really need to focus on like the pathologies that are endemic to American society that kind of foster this predilection to, to violence that sometimes manifest in a mass shooting like what happened in Columbine. Um, and so he, wa- he also was circumventing this kind of just narrow gu- gun control debate, which is now dominated so much of the aftermath of these events. And, you know, one of the points that he raised was that um, U.S. foreign policy, given its kind of incessant belligerence, uh, was a contributing factor in just kind of conditioning or habituating the public into seeing violence as a viable option. And I'm not sure if I would necessarily agree 100% that that is true. First of all, it's hard to establish empirically. Uh, but this was sort of a – this was a case that he made. He actually pointed out that on the day of the Columbine shooting, April 20th, two, uh, 1999, um, Bill Clinton dropped the most bombs on uh, – Kosovo or on Yugoslavia as had been dropped throughout that entire uh, bombing campaign in 1999. And, you know, Moore just pointed out this out as a juxtaposition. He didn't make a full-fledged kind of totally complete argument out of it. Um, but he did kind of raise this point many times. And there were those, he did interviews when he was promoting the movie and uh, in the run-up to the Iraq war saying that, look, we have a president who is talking about you know bomb Saddam first and asks questions later, and that kind of explains why we have this gun violence problem. That was Moore's point, and so I, that's all just to say these kind of points were so commonplace back then that the most successful documentarian of all time was making them routinely, and I don't remember people on the left or or liberals being so kind of innately repulsed by it that they would get extremely furious and deny that that's even a relevant consideration. Whereas today, I think they would and, and are and do because they're so monomaniacally fixated on uh, just the, the narrow gun control uh, debate. So if you were to raise the, the point that today we have the same people who are so fervently now calling for gun control um, also supporting the proliferation of uncontrolled guns throughout Ukraine, um, they wouldn't even see any... They wouldn't even accept that there's anything, any relevance there. They would, in fact, be completely enraged that you would even make that point. And having made that point myself, I can attest. Um, so, oh, Richard, uh, I think you dropped out of the room. 
Let's see here. How do I get you back? Uh, invite to speak. Uh, Richard, yeah, I brought you back. And yeah, that was the end of my rant. And if, I just wanted to see if you had any uh, thoughts on that. Yeah, sorry. I just, uh, I, I've heard it the whole time. I just accidentally took myself outside out of the speakers. Um, yeah, um, you know, I don't, you're right about how liberals, uh, liberals and the arguments they make have changed over the time. I've never, uh, I've heard of Bowling for Columbine and never, I never watched it. I saw Fahrenheit 9-11. So I sort of, I actually, I like, I was, you know, we were sort of the same age and people got into politics around the same time and were interested in the same issue. So yeah, I, I watched Fahrenheit 9-11. So I knew him from the later stuff, but, uh, you know, like Bowling from Columbine was like before I started to pay attention to politics. That's like exactly, you know, when I was becoming, you know, a teenager going from early teens to late teens. Um, you know, but the way you describe the argument, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't buy it. I mean, the, the school shootings, they're so rare, right? So you have like 300, you know, 40 million people, whatever we are now, you know, they happen like once every three years. Like there's no like statistical method you could use to like predict this stuff. It's just so, I mean, it's just such a small, tiny thing. It's like, ter- it's like terrorist attacks. I mean, it's the same way. It's something that's so statistically small. It's not like 1% of, you know, men, young men become school shooters or even 0.1%. It's like point oh oh one percent so like whatever we're doing like okay so canada's doing something different from the u.s then canada they have like say zero percent school shooters and we have point zero 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 one percent school shooters so the only difference between us and canada is point zero 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 one what's that thing that's having that point zero you're like it's not like you know that's not easy that's not easy to figure out uh so you know i don't i don't think that the, you know i don't i think actually the liberal position to focus on guns um is actually a more sophisticated i mean it is a more sophisticated uh position we don't have you know when ted cruz says we have to um you know, we need fewer doors, <laughs> doors in schools or, you know, the, the mental health stuff, like you can catch every uh, mentally ill pil- person. Uh, you know, that's not realistic. Um, so liberal conservatives now sort of sound like liberals just because they, you know, they won't say anything about guns. Um, while the idea that it's like, yeah, like the fact that the AR-15 exists and that's like a, sort of a big deal and that increases, you know, the likelihood of like a mass shooter. Um that that makes more sense. Um, so, I, you know, I do think that this is actually one place. Now, I'll say the one place where liberals maybe have become more sensible, although it's not sensible to put a lot of political capital into this because this is such a, um, uh, you know, a small problem in the grand scheme of things. I mean, Eric Swallow, you know, one of our favorite politicians was on MSNBC and uh, there was a video on, on uh, that was put on Twitter of him saying, you know, I tuck my kids in at night and, you know, our kids all ask us, you know, uh, is everything going to be okay? We have to be truthful with them and tell them, no, it won't be. And like, you know, nobody says this is misinformation. I mean, your odds of dying in a school shooting are just very small. We hear about every single one um, because they're, you know, national events. Um, but statistically, it's not, you know, it's not a big thing. Uh, if you were going to focus on it, you know, I think the guns is, you know, a wiser choice than, you know, doors. But, um, you know, these these tragedies, I mean, I think we just have to sort of, you know, we have to sort of accept that bad things happen in this world and not many people want to say that. Yeah, I, I, I think it can be a bit tenuous to assert any kind of concrete, tangible connection between U.S. foreign policy and the kind of uh, recurrence of these mass shootings. Um, again, it can be hard to sustain empirically, but there are some reasons to think that there could be a connection, especially when you look at cer- certain concrete examples of mass shootings. Like, you might not even remember this one, and it didn't get a, uh, as much attention as others. It got some. But in November 2018, there was a mass shooting at 
a country music um, night at a bar and grill in uh, Thousand Oaks, California. It was a college night. And uh, the shooter killed uh, 12 people and then was uh, then killed himself. And um, it turned out that this shooter was a guy who I think was 29 or 30, and he was an Afghanistan veteran, and he was, saw combat in Afghanistan. He, um, he uh, was a machine gunner uh, during the period of 2010 to 2011, which was you know the surge that Obama and Petraeus cooked up. Um, and the uh, Ventura County, California uh, Sheriff's Department did a comprehensive investigation on the shooting, and they concluded... Um, that he, quote, I, I'm writing a piece on, on this now, and here's what they concluded as to his motivation. He, quote, ha, he had a, quote, strong disdain for civilians or individuals not associated with any branch of the U.S. military, <laughs> uh, in particular college students. Um, and they quoted uh, ex-girlfriends of his saying that he uh, suffered emotionally from witnessing the tra- travesties of war and had PTSD. Um, so, yeah, if you're talking about it in a, a statistical sense, these events are so unlikely that it's almost impossible to infer anything from them uh, in, in a way that makes sense kind of on a population-wide basis. Uh, but when you do examine the particulars of some of these shootings, and this isn't the only one that was committed by a, uh, a war veteran, um, I think it, it is defensible to say that there could be some uh, connection there. Now, these re- most recent two shootings in Buffalo and in uh, Texas – uh, don't appear to have been perpetrated by a uh, you know military veterans, but there have been quite a few that have been in the past uh, you know fifteen years or so. Yeah, it's I mean it's it's a plausible connection. I'd be interested to read that piece. I don't remember the Thousand Oaks one. I mean it's so uh, yeah. I mean you you can figure that like. One thing that would be correlated with likelihood of committing a mass shooting would be like, you know, trauma in your life. And like obviously having a lot of young men who fought in war, I mean, they're going to have they're going to have trauma. So, I mean, that makes sense. It's just another source of sort of mental instability, Um, you know, whether like a more cultural thing, like we bomb people. Therefore, you know, we feel more, you know, we feel more violent or we devalue human life. Maybe that's true. That's that's a little harder to prove. Yeah. Uh, so, what, what about this sort of um, ancillary point that I've been <laughs> mentioning, and, and that people obviously get extremely angered by? But I do think there's actually something to it, which is that you know the most hardcore pro gun control a- uh, advocates right now in the U.S. who want you know to restrict massively the ability of Americans to obtain guns are, on the other hand, also fervent advocates of dumping a gigantic amount of arms, including just these small small uh, firearms that could be used in similar events in Eastern Europe without any way to, quote, control them. I mean, there's no gun control happening in Ukraine right now. Um, and it, but it, it's I, I think, you know, liberals in particular compartmentalize foreign policy so much that they wouldn't it would never even occur to them that there could be some connection. I, I pulled up this. Um, tweet from april from uh, this guy john stokes who is a founder of uh, ars technica the kind of tech uh, reporting website and here's what he said april 15th quote had a fascinating chat with a well-placed friend who tipped me to something eurocrats are quietly freaking out about the, uh, that there's now a place in europe where the world is handing guns to randos by the millions with mm-hmm. zero tracking or oversight <laughs> 
Um, think about what happens to all the small arms that are flooding into Ukraine and being given to any warm body with any kind of passport or none at all. All the guns the Russians are leaving on, on the ground. Where do they go? How do you keep them from Paris or Berlin? So um, on, on the one hand, you know, gun control has to be like this number one priority to save lives in the U.S., but we're total cheerleaders for, again, the totally uncontrolled and uncontrollable proliferation of guns in Eastern Europe, and, 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 and it, they get to- completely angry and uh, indignant if you posit that maybe those are worth considering in tandem. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, um, you know, the, the, you could make a case that these aren't the same thing, right? So, well, I'm not saying, know, they're, I'm not saying they're the same on. thing. I'm saying that they're, they're mm-hmm. kind of, they're both relevant to gun, quote-unquote gun control. It's it's relevant, but I mean it is you know it's it's sort of they are uh, yeah I mean you could imagine that okay the U S um, you know whatever the argument is for having too many guns in the U S um, you could always also say you know Ukraine is going to be a country with a lot of guns there and that's that's a bad thing I mean I think what liberal a liberal would say is you know this is not a it's a war a war is a different thing so the bigger danger is you know Russian troops so like you know if it if it leads to a, a higher crime rate in Ukraine later, you know, that's something that, you know, you deal with at the time. Uh, yeah, you know, I don't, I, you know, I, you know, you know, I don't uh, support, um, you know, providing a lot of military aid to Ukraine, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's not lo- necessarily logically inconsistent to be for gun control in the U.S. and also for, you know, uh, uh, militaristic foreign policy, although that's not what I would support. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I'm, I don't deny that there are arguments to be be made to reject any kind of supposed inconsistency between, on the one hand, supporting stringent gun control in the U.S., uh, and on the other hand, supporting uncontrollable proliferation of arms in Ukraine or elsewhere in Eastern Europe. Uh, but I do think that the cavalierness with which the latter policy is promoted by liberals. Um, and then the uh, total moral fervency that, that that both are simultaneously promoted with, and uh, and the fact that they don't even stop to ponder any potential conflict or um, tension between those two uh, policies, again, at the very least, speaks to this compartmentalization that they're engaged in. Um, because you can't say that you're in favor of gun control unto itself if the policy that you're also simultaneously promoting is the antithesis of gun control. Like there are, there are actually these you know, think tanks and organizations and stuff that you know, haven't been as vocal lately because it's not going to be politically acceptable in many instances. But you know, on occasion, you can read articles in the Washington Post, for example, where they're quoting executive, like an executive director at this place, the Stimson Center, uh, talking about how you know these guns are going to be in circulation now in perpetuity, and we have no real means to quote unquote control them or even have any kind of even a, a fulfill the putative statutory requirements in the U.S. for these arms international arms transfers, which is to have end use monitoring. Um, people in the U.S. government will leak to the have leaked to the media that they have absolutely no capacity to fulfill that requirement now. Um, so, I mean, if that, I just think if that never even enters your mind while you are simultaneously demanding gun control in the U.S., 
I know it, it, it speaks to a certain myopia that I think is kind of um, illustrative of the sort of moral and political universe that a lot of liberals inhabit. Yeah, yeah. I don't think you have to even like compare their. Uh, uh, I don't think you even have to compare um, their view on Ukraine to something else like gun control. I mean, you could just ask how much. Um, how much thought they're giving to sort of the consequences of their of their actions, you know, as a general matter. And I think clearly not very much. I mean, like the, you know, uh, Henry Kissinger, you might, you, you probably saw, um, you know, he was, he was criticized for like taking a pro-Russian position. I saw the reaction to it before I saw the comments. So let's, he's like, this is, you know, he's talking, uh, you know, this is like Munich. I mean, he says Munich, right? I mean, they, you know, he uses the standard example. So I thought like Henry Kissinger had said like surrender to Russia or something. And all Henry Kissinger was said was, um, you know, uh, we should try to have a deal where you go back to February 24th, where you say you uh, go back to before the Russian invasion. And that would mean like Russia giving up all this territory, giving up, you know, the South uh, that it conquered, the places it conquered, like Mariupol Opel and Kherson, and it's, you know, the stone places in uh, Donetsk and Luhansk that they're still fighting over and, some, and making gains in some places. And so this is all Kissinger was saying. I mean, he was saying like a thing that like, you know, I don't think Russia would agree with, would agree to that, would agree to give, give up all this territory that it just uh, fought for. Um, and no, that's not good enough for Ukrainian, the Ukrainians. That's, that's appeasement. That outrages people. So we are not, you know, like, forget, like, the future of Ukraine. Like, we're, you know, we're not even, like, thinking about, like, how the war is going to end, like, you know, or how we're going to get to a place where there's going to be peace other than, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, it's like, or, like, victory for Ukraine. Um, it's, uh, I don't know if they, you know, it's, it's like, that's going to be the policy by default. Even if, like, Biden or Blinken, like, they'd want, like, you know, they'd, they'd in theory, be open to something else. I mean, there's not, there's no political motivation uh, to, uh, to go for anything less than that. Um, so it's, it's a, it's a really, it's a bad situation. And like, you know, like assuming the war, you know, does end at some point, what Ukraine's going to look like, like what all these guns and like, not just the guns, but like the militias and like all these, like, uh, uh, all these gangs of men who like, you know, fought in the revolution and are going to feel like, you know, they deserve a piece of the pie and what kind of society it's going to be. Uh, you know, we're definitely not thinking that far ahead. Yeah, you know, I actually hadn't seen that Zelensky accused Kissinger of appeasement on the order of Munich, which is funny because just yesterday, I don't know if you saw this, but I tweeted a little thread based on uh, my rereading of um, portions of a book by Seymour Hirsch on uh, John F. Kennedy from uh, 1997, and there's there's a chapter about the Cuban Missile Crisis, and uh, Hirsch reports that after the Cuban Missile Crisis ended, uh, John F. Kennedy leaked to two of these very establishment uh, journalists that one of the members of his sort of like inner circle or kitchen cabinet, uh, Adelaide Stevenson, who was the Democratic nominee for president twice against uh, Eisenhower and lost, um, and so, so you know could then be seen as sort of like a punching bag. Uh, Kennedy accused Adelaide Stevenson in this leak of having been one of the people within his circle who was advocating for, quote, Munich, meaning the Munich option to resolve the, the uh, crisis. And what is it that Adelaide Stevenson was advocating at the time? He was advocating that the U.S. cut a deal with uh, Khrushchev to uh, agree to take missiles out of Turkey in exchange for the Soviet Union not putting the missiles into Cuba and turning around yeah, their, so exactly their ships. What, exactly what they so did, exactly yeah. what Kennedy did, but of course it didn't come out for like two plus decades 
that Kennedy actually made that deal. And yet he wanted the public at the time to think that the option that Kennedy ultimately himself did choose was no, is it possible is it possible you're saying that they're working out some deal right now? We just don't know about it. Well, I'm saying I, I don't know. It's it's possible. Um, I think that I think Kissinger saying this is actually pretty significant because you know, even though he's turning 99 years old, I think uh, tomorrow or the next day, um, it, he's in this sort of incredible role where he's been one of the most relevant people in foreign policy for like 60 years. Um, he even, I don't know if you remember this, but on the day that, uh, Trump fired Comey in 2017, the first thing he did, or one of the first things he did immediately afterwards was meet in the White House with Henry Kissinger. Yeah, I remember that, yeah. Um, and, you know, Kissinger still is, you know, he's still out and about. He, I, I watched him at this, uh, Financial Times conference a few Years ago, a few uh, weeks ago, he's apparently speaking at this Davos conference. He has a new book coming out, um, and so he still he's, 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 he's got a lot of sway. Um, I, I, I don't. I'm not suggesting that there's a secret deal that we don't know about that's underway. I think there pro- probably isn't. I mean, I think we probably would have. It, it, it's much. It was much easier to cover stuff up back then under Kennedy than it would be today. Um, yeah, I was thinking, but yeah, I, I was, I was pointing that out in terms of the the. Uh, the fallacy of these Munich analogies because, you know, Kennedy put out the Munich analogy on totally fallacious grounds in 62 uh, when he did the exact same thing that he was wanting to accuse his, you know, inner rival of being an appeaser for. Um, so so I, I guess I, I just wanted to bring that up as a parallel in terms of how this Munich or, you know, uh, Neville Chamberlain analogy gets totally distorted. Yeah, well, it's depressing. I mean, in 60 years, we haven't found a new analogy like it's the only thing that people know and they've been saying it you know since uh since the kennedy administration or or before yeah i mean the munich i mean even munich itself somebody should write i mean there are people who have written about this sort of like revisionist takes on on munich like there was a book by pep you had it uh churchill hitler and the unnecessary war uh, another book called uh human smoke so there, there were these books yeah you know, P- peter hitchens actually has a similar take he wrote a he wrote a whole yes. book about the phony war period you know when the Technically, Britain was at war with Germany, but there was no warfare for like nine months. Yeah, and I think you're right that like it would actually be optimistic if they like had something worked out behind the scenes. Yeah, I think it's not 1961 anymore. I mean, I think hide, you know hiding that is very difficult. You know, a lot of people in the uh, in the um, uh, you know working on Russia policy are crazy. You know, they're Mike McFall. Uh, types. Uh, so, you know, like they would leak it, they would try to sabotage it. So it's, I think it's very hard uh, to do that uh, these days. By the way, Mike, I have to, um, like, I'll probably have to leave like 10 minutes after the hour. So if you want to like um, take questions, start getting questions early or, or not, I mean, it's up to you what you should do. Uh, yeah, that's fine. I guess just one, one, one more point, then we'll go into questions. Um, so I don't know if you saw any of these, uh, either of these two articles that came out today, but they're they seem sort of significant to me, to me in terms of a potential change in the tenor of the coverage of Ukraine. No, on the one hand, maybe it's it, – and you've speculated this might happen before, but maybe it could just get drowned out by other issues. You know, obviously, people are more, gonna, more focused right, as of right now on these mass, mass shootings, particularly the one in Texas. Um, but there was, some, there was sort of a watershed article today in the Washington Post, which I'm assuming won't get that much coverage in you know the rest of the media but nonetheless it was the first article that i've seen that actually painted a p- 
torture it based on independently obtained information, so not just through the PR channels officially associated with the Ukraine government, but due to like genuinely original reporting on uh, the, the status of the Ukraine forces. There was this one battalion um, that was comprised of volunteers that initially got sent to Lviv in western Ukraine and then eventually made its way was ordered to make its way to the east and over the course of the war it's lost over half of its men um, and the commanders of this um, unit are you know were appalled by how they've been treated by the senior military officials in the Ukraine military that they've been not not been given the resources they need and um, they basically just hung out, left hung out to dry. And so this Washington Post reporter got um, two of the commanders to give comments about what a sorry state they're in. Um, and once this happened, the Ukrainian military police arrested the two commanders um, because there's been a total like, information blockade on what's actually happening with the Ukrainian military. We had, for some reason, as you know, Avril Haines, the director of national intelligence, amazingly admitted a few weeks ago before Congress, the U.S. at least claims that it has more insight into like the logistical and uh, operational status of the Russian military than it does in the on the Ukrainian military. Even though the Ukrainian military is the one we're subsidizing. Um, anyway, but that, but that was a, that was an article that you know really kind of went against the sort of narrative that's prevailed now for three months. Um, and uh, so it seems to me potentially significant. Uh, and on top of that, and this doesn't really have to do with the media narrative, but it was also announced today that uh, Biden has given has uh, relinquished whatever reservations he might have had about sending these long-range missiles to Ukraine um, because Ukrainian officials have been lobbying desperately for, for the U.S. to send these advanced long-range uh, missile systems to Ukraine because they, they're claiming that that's what they need to turn the tide in the east. And uh, Biden originally was reported to have been reluctant to do so because it meant that Ukraine could use those long-range missiles to launch strikes inside Russia. And there already have been attacks inside Russia uh, that Ukraine forces committed um, but you know this could actually be you know very uh, e- even more escalatory, and you know so it just kind of fits with the pattern that I've observed from Biden from the outset of this, which is that you know whenever he uh, kind of gives inclinations about not wanting to quote escalate, all you do have to do is wait like a week or two, and he'll eventually just uh, give in. So anyway, those seem like two potentially uh, notable developments. Yeah, I hadn't seen the one uh, the Washington Post story. I just pulled it up right now and I'll, you know, I'll read it after this. Uh, yeah, that, that's interesting um, that they would start sort of reporting on the negative aspects of the war. And, you know, also the New York Times I saw today, um, it was like, you know, some leaders are questioning like how the war ends. And it was like, you know, it was trying to, it was doing the presenting it in sort of like a neutral way. So it was talking about uh, Emmanuel Macron and, you know, the prime minister of Italy. Um, and so it was like, you know, presenting these ideas in a neutral way, which is like a sign of, you know, something potentially uh, changing. Um, as far as the, um, yeah, the, uh, the the new um, missile systems. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 you know, supposedly they go 200, you know, the 200 miles or something like that. And like the, the ones that the U.S. gave uh, so far, they go up to 20. Um, so it seems like it's serious. I mean, this has to be understood as sort of the backdrop that like 
you know, they were hoping that Russia was like sort of done. It wasn't, it was like going to fall apart or at least it wasn't going to make any more advances. It'd be stalemate, but Russia is, um, is advancing. And so the, um, in the second phase of the war, so the Ukrainians are being encircled in, in uh, Severodonetsk. So whatever the U S has been doing up to this point, I mean, it hasn't changed the tide of the war. I mean, Russia maybe had to scale back its ambitions, but Russia is advancing and it's going to have, you know, probably have all of Luhansk soon. Uh, so, you know, the question is, what do they, what does the U S do? Does it try to, uh, you know, achieve some kind of, you know, settlement or some kind of frozen conflict, or does it just like give Ukraine like bigger and bigger weapons and like hope something changes, you know, that that's, that, that might be what, what they're doing. I don't know. It's, it's, um, you know, a lot of times you hear these headlines like, oh, the, they're going to get this or that. And then it ends up like not happening. Like the U.S. like give like Germany in like one case gave them like uh, tanks, but like no, none of the ammo that was necessary for the tank. Uh, so like they always want the headlines, I'm sure. Uh, maybe they're not you know, going to do everything that they say. So we'll, we'll just even have to see if that's true. Yeah. And then there also was I don't know if you saw the New York Times editorial, like the uh, institutional editorial from last week that made yeah. people totally infuriated where they said, that you know, look, it might be the case that Ukraine would have to give certain territorial concessions and um, in order to bring about an end to the war. And of course, people went crazy over this because they were calling the New York Times appeasers and saying, you know, uh, they're, they're going back to their old days of excusing the uh, Soviet atrocities and all this. Um, so, I mean, I do, I do think that you have – the fact that you have the New York Times editorial board and Henry Kissinger um, making gestures toward this is somewhat significant. Um, you know, the White House is going to be aware of what Kissinger says and what the New York Times editorial board says. Will it have an effect on their policy? Probably not, I, I guess, but it's, um, it's more significant than there, if there were just no elite at all making points along these lines. Yeah. I mean, it's strange. I mean, it's strange because like you said, it's like the, 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 that stuff is going on. But at the same time, the other thing we're talking about, the, uh, uh, the escalation and the uh, kind of weaponry that's being provided. So let's, I, I mean, do they have a plan? Is it like, are they actually just pretending to be one thing or the other? Or are they just sort of winging it and like, oh, okay, Ukraine's like bothering us for weapons, so we'll give them weapons. And then like other New York Times is saying stuff and, you know, they're just saying stuff. And, you know, who knows? I mean, it doesn't mean actually anything that is, you know, everything we said, Kissinger or the New York Times, you know, they could be just, they're operating, you know, based on their own understanding of the situation doesn't mean the Biden administration approves. So, you know, it's a question of whether there are signs from the Biden administration that they're, you know, serious about reaching a settlement. Yeah. And they haven't made those indications at all. And then when they just have just recently gotten this latest 40 billion, I mean, that's going to last at least, I think they, they're claiming that's going to, that should last at least through the summer uh, in terms of supplying the armaments to Ukraine that, that the U.S. decides needs to be uh, provided. Um, so, you know, there, there's nothing on a policy level that really suggests any kind of distinct, distinction today, uh, any kind of divergence of strategy today. And you, know, you even had Joe Manchin at, you know, I know you saw this, Joe Manchin at Davos was, uh, you know, repeating his call for regime change. And he's the most sought, uh, courted senator in the entire, uh, in the entire body. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you have maybe some conflicting signals, but I think in, in the main, uh, everything points toward a, just a continued trajectory toward escalation. Um, yeah, right, and let's, interesting. 
Yeah, I mean, it's just going to say an interesting question is what happens if Russia, you know, even gets even more successful, if it starts making even more gains. Um, you know, it, it, the things can't stay the same. So the question is whether they'll move to a more sort of conciliatory uh, place or they'll just, you know, keep doubling down. Yeah. All right, let's go to some uh, callers here. Uh, Eric, my uh, longtime correspondent, you are up. Eric, are you there? It's Michael Tracy live. <laughs> Thank you for that. I should clip out that um, soundbite and uh, maybe use it as my ringtone. Musical guest Richard Hananya. <laughs> is that how I, is that how you say it? I always need to ask the pronunciation of from people. Hananya, but you know, either way. What is you. by the way? What is the ethnic background of your surname? I never knew. Palestinian. Oh wow! Okay. Very cool. Um, so it was very nice to hear from you. And I think, you know, there's a meta comment, I think, in your question, I think, of you asking, well, am I allowed to talk about this? Like, uh, for example, am I allowed, are we allowed to talk about just generally speaking, holistically, what kind of view you're supposed to take about the concept of gun violence or violence in our society and um, what the government, you know, should do about um, people who are killing, and then, of course, our own government's culpability in killing. So, um, you know, it's one of those things where I think, you know, I feel like I'm a broken record, but I'll say this, you know, every day until the day I die. But a mark of an authoritarian is someone who just says, how dare you compare? When, you know, you can compare things and you can come out and you can, crucially, is contrast things. People think to compare is to equate or whatever. But um, no, I mean, there's definitely inferences in terms of, you know, I mean, you can think about, well, what is the American ideology or philosophy? And part of it is, is you look at, you know, um, in both cases, is people with these big arsenals of guns saying, well, this is for my self-defense. I say, like, well, what, what kind of self-defense are you anticipating? He's like, well, don't worry about it. <laughs> right. But then you think about, well, what is U.S. policy towards the Middle East or towards any other country it wants to evade? It's like we're acting in self-defense against Iraq. You know, or even against Afghanistan, once, you know, you clear out the Al-Qaeda terrorists, well, then how are we acting in self-defense now? Um, so it, it, there is something, I think, in the American character. I don't know, I mean, if, study, if you're a student of history, I mean, you see how we've expanded to 50 states. It was our manifest destiny, right? But um, there's something about aggression that, I mean, as an American, I feel like, you know, hello, am I the only one who's seeing this? But um, maybe, uh, anyways, that was my comment. So thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, I guess this sort of gets back to this whole refrain of whataboutism, where like you're not allowed to say what about this or what about that in relation to anything that's going on, particularly in the realm of foreign policy in Russia, because then you're just doing a Russian disinformation tactic to distract people from what the real issue is, which is always uh, and everywhere condemning Russia. And like the only debate that's allowed is how strenuously you're supposed to condemn Russia. It's not a matter of whether they ought to be condemned. And, you know, just to be clear, I'm not saying that they should not be condemned in every circumstance. I mean, I think the you know, launching an aggressive invasion, as I've said many times, is a condemnable act. Um, but, yeah, I mean, they do narrow the range of acceptable discussion um, simply by reference to this idea that you're um, – abetting Putin if you if you deviate too much. Um, and so, you know, I'm not saying that 
and, and I even, of course, I mean, I'm sort of inert to this now, but people made exactly that point to me when I raised this issue of you know, gun control not being apparently at all pertinent when you're talking about the U.S. proxy war, uh, where you know the whole point is to <laughs> influx a country with a uh, inherently uncontrollable firearms that could potentially be used for something like, I don't know, a mass shooting. Um, anyway, uh, Richard, any thoughts? Uh, so, you know, it's funny today. I saw Ned Price, uh, say something along the lines of, you know, mass shootings hurt our stature abroad. Like, you know, all the diplomats <laughs> are like saying that. And it's so funny because it's like, you know, yeah, it's like you're, you're a betting Putin. Yeah, you're not supposed to compare the U.S. to other countries, except when there's like something politically specifically they want done. And then it's like, oh, we take care of our stature, right? It's just, yeah, it's a silly, it's a silly sort of exception to their rule. Well, people, so I remember said the same thing around January 6th, where they're saying this this uh, diminishes the prestige, the stature, or uh, credibility of the U.S., and so, you know, one reason why we have to crack down so hard on this now and, you know, you know, make sure Trump never gets anywhere close to power again and punish all the Republicans who were complicit is because it's all about credibility on the world stage. And, of course, you know, credibility is this fake currency that foreign policy pundits have invented to make it seem like they have any idea what the hell they're talking about. Um, which I'm sure probably offends your sensibilities, Richard, because I don't think credibility is something that can be quantified and put onto a graph. Oh, you know me. You know I love those political science, uh, political <laughs> science graphs. You know, yeah, I mean, it's like, uh, you know, what's, what's, what's pernicious about this stuff? It's like, it's like, it's like, you know, they're hiding, like, oh, it's not me I want gun control. It's like the rest of the world is watching. It's like, you know, if that's true, like, no, we don't have to, like, you know, change our country you know for for the sake of the rest of the world i mean maybe if you want to be a global empire maybe you have to do but that's like that's a reason not to have a global empire that's not a reason to uh you know let the rest of the world sort of dictate your politics yeah and the the liberal commentariat's obsession with this idea of uh credibility is somewhat ironic because i remember hearing that really coming into uh fruition as this concept uh, under Obama, I mean, I'm sure there are, it predated that as well. But it would be always in vote against Obama, particularly, as I recall, around uh, Syria, because you know, Obama drew the red line, and then when he didn't follow through adequately on you know, punishing Assad, when Assad crossed the red line, that did catastrophic damage to U.S. credibility. Um, and you know, this, this would be pretty aggressively pushed back on by liberal pundits uh, because, you know, on the maybe they were just partisan defenders of Obama or maybe they had other arguments, but either way, they pushed back aggressively against it. And this is now, ever since the advent of the Trump era, it's one of their main, the main arguments in their arsenal uh, because, you know, things just fluctuate back and forth and they don't have any reason to maintain consistency. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, their, that's their sort of, uh, that's their story of everything is just neutral, we're experts, we're, we're just looking for international stature, we're just, you know, it, it's this hiding political preferences behind something else. Yeah. All right, uh, Matthew, you're up. Uh, hello, guys, can you hear me? Yep. Okay, so, and I think, Michael, I've called him before, so you know I'm not just simply a one-dimensional show, but I have to, against you, but I have to say, I've been clenching my fist listening to you two fellas tonight. First of all, I think that the narrative um, from people in your circle, I'm, I, because I, I think woke is is tyrannical, at least aspirationally, I'm sympathetic to a lot of things going on in your circle, to be clear. 
I think the characterization of of U.S. foreign policy um, is very one-dimensional and biased against the United States, actually. It's every war is, or every intervention is Vietnam or Iraq or the second Iraq war or Afghanistan or whatever. And anyone who supports an intervention and say if they support the foreign aid to Afghanistan, to, pardon me, to Ukraine and oppose the Vietnam war or Iraq or the second Iraq war is just a shill or a hypocrite or they're hypocrites. Glenn Greenwell keeps saying because they, people aren't volunteering for a foreign army. I think this is uh, very simple. My these these things should be evaluated one by one rather than just, oh, you support Lockheed Martin or, oh, this. Yeah, I think these things need to be evaluated one by one. Uh, and uh, Michael, and I think I've expressed this before, I have great regard for your gumption and intellect. I subscribe to you on, on various forms, but the analogy you said is the dumbest thing I've ever heard you say. So innocent people are killed in war. Collateral damage, uh, like weapons of war are indiscriminate, as you know, of course. Like the kinds of norms that apply in war, whether you're flooding in weapons or, or you know, using indiscriminate uh, weaponry, which is inevitable, the, the moral norms are just totally different. So the question to me is whether the war is justified. If it is, there's obviously no analogy. If it isn't, then we shouldn't be saying weapons, period. And then uh, to Richard, like, uh, and I, I, Richard, again, I, I like your commentary quite a bit. Um, if generally, but this gender stuff to me seems very ideological. So obviously the left is ideological on this. Any difference is sexism, but you seem to like fetishize these binaries, even when it's not supported by empirical evidence. So like, I remember you just ridiculing the idea of women serving in combat. I mean, like read the history of the second world war of the Soviet union, utterly desperate situation. They had hundreds of thousands of women serving in very dangerous situations Dozens of women won the very highest uh, military de- decorations and served as snipers. Yeah. Obviously, I'm not saying yeah, there's no difference. I, you know, I'll, I'll say that's that's fair enough. Yeah, that that certain circumstances, you're right. But yeah, it ahead. is. And also, given your self description about like being the last person selected, it sounds kind of larpy. Even I, I don't think it's like. Of course, there are differences, and the left is stupid to deny it. There are all kinds of differences, and they may be biologically based, they may be socially. We don't know. We should no, have no. We mind. know. We know. They're biological. But I think the right can be ideological on this. <laughs> no, it's not ideological. Well, of course, that's you know, that, that's that's a little bit. That's that's something where, uh, you know, I would I would I would push back and say to say we don't know whether it's biologically based is the kind of thing no no, no. Of, obviously like like women on average being less suited for combat. Of course, it's biological and personality based. and 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 everything. I mean, sexual behavior. I mean, that's well, not there's my, I obviously that. differences, but like my point is. If we look at a disparity in representation in STEM, I think it's ideological to say we know that's fully genetic and a reflection of choice, or we know it's fully environmental. I think both are ideological. We don't have – I think probably it's both. I think, you know, it's probably both, but I don't know. But I, I just think there's ideolog- ideology in, in how you talk about gender. Well, I, I, I admit um, that there are some, there are some aesthetic – uh, preferences here. Um, as far as the uh, the STEM thing, you know, I would say that it's uh, uh, you know we've had you know a, an effort to put a little bit more women in STEM that's you know several decades old for with limited uh, success. And the question is why would we have you know why would women be doing so well in biology but then so bad in STEM? And you know you could you could try to make up a reason and then you have to look at other countries. So you know whatever. I mean, women in STEM is not my is not my biggest uh, uh, concern. Um, you know, I think that uh, you know the gender stuff. I mean, uh, I think that I think what's you know what's important. I think here um, is basically how women 
certain women, not not all women, uh, certainly, but how certain women interact with institutions. So if you look at these sort of uh, cancel culture mobs, this is you know my, my thoughts here, but more extensively made that uh, the article uh, "Women's Tears Win in the Marketplace of Ideas." I mean, the the idea is basically like there's double standards in how we treat the sexes, and you know it's often to the advantage of women, and it's often used to shut down debate. So this yeah, is, if this white is men didn't behave case. ridiculously like absurd people. Who ha- white men have most of these positions of power. If they didn't enable these woke lunatics who hate freedom of speech and hate the country, then this wouldn't happen. So I, I don't buy the idea that women or – I'm not saying you said this, but some people have said, oh, some ethnic minority. No, it's like most – white men are in most of these positions of power and are for whatever reason participating in this ridiculous ideology to, to demean freedom of expression and rigorous exchange of ideas. And I don't – and it wouldn't be po- if if white males alone were against this, it wouldn't be. This would not be happening because of yeah. if you look at where power lies, it's still mostly. Yeah, I agree. You know, I agree. Most, and actually, one of the things I write in the article is that that's true. But men sort of have a harder time arguing with women when a woman comes up to you, and this is what's happened in a lot of the campus. Uh, cancel culture controversies it'll be just like a girl screaming and crying right in front of uh you know some professor or some administrator and you're right if the, all the men stood you know firm and you know uh didn't give into this wokeness stuff it would still there but the point is you know it's, it's hard. there's these gender differences and there's these natural reactions we have to men and women that are different that are that are sort of screwing up the, the dynamic yeah okay um so so matthew first of all i always appreciate how you preface your searing criticisms with some <laughs> praise which i i don't think is perfunctory it seems sincere to me it's not so, uh, I, yeah. i've been sympathetic to you before i'll let you talk no sorry yeah yeah okay so uh i, I sort of don't i mean on, on the point of the analogy that you're claiming is extremely dumb I, i'm not sure that i would necessarily even characterize it as an analogy right i do think it's probably true that it more comes down to the justifiability of the war effort however if one of the issues that you're saying is of paramount importance in the U.S. is gun control, um, and you know that one of the other issues that you're saying of paramount importance, which is the proxy war in Ukraine, is going to be antithetical to your claimed commitment to gun control, maybe that would raise the bar of justifiability for whether the proxy war is warranted, or maybe it would have some effect on how you conceptualize the desirability of fueling the proxy war, or in other words, maybe it would have some impact, whatever, on your kind of mode of thinking uh, about that issue. And it just doesn't. I mean, the, the point that I've been trying to make is that it would never even occur to so many of these liberals to even just examine a potential tension between these issues. So if, again, if you're really that zealously committed to gun control and what you're doing in Ukraine is totally undermining uh, gun control there, again, that should presumably factor into whether you think the war is justified. Again, maybe, maybe it would raise the bar of justifiability for you. Now, you can, you can so, still claim that the ju- bar of justifiability has been passed, that you nonetheless want to um, sort of uh, rena- uh, relinquish any claim to favoring gun control, at least in that context, then that, that's fine. But I don't really see any, any reasoning that even attempts to grapple with it. And, and, and on the issue of um, oversimplified takes on foreign policy where everything is just automatically analogized to Iraq or Vietnam, you know, I agree that that can be oversimplif- oversimplistic. I like to think that I don't engage in those analogies in an oversimplistic way. However, when you have such a um, litany 
of American foreign policy misadventures to draw on and to um, use as lessons that might have bearing on current debates, then I think you're more than entitled to draw on those lessons. You know, I know you don't have to go to Vietnam. How about just go to Nicaragua? I mean, maybe that's a closer parallel. I mean, it's not a perfect parallel to what's going on in Ukraine, but, you know, it was the Reagan administration um, funding and arming uh, crazy rebels in um, in Nicaragua. I mean, they weren't funding the government, and I, I grant, but it's one of these kind of occasional attempts by the U.S. to flood a certain country with, with weapons in pursuit of a desired political aim. I don't know. Do you, does, does that seem to have gone particularly well? How about the Reagan administration funding the um, Mujahideen and arming the Mujahideen? I mean, that used to be well known as to have, have backfired just by uh, supporting, uh, giving uh, the, the, a start to Osama bin Laden. So, I mean, yeah, I, I may, sometimes these analogies can be a little too knee-jerk and a little too... Um, reflexive. But I, I think it's perfectly valid to entertain them as having relevance to our I, current, current I, conditions. I, look, of course I agree, but but I think that people who are focused on our crimes exclusively are making the same mistake of kind of a, as Matt Taibbi put it, like kind of an anti-jingoism. So for example, I would absolutely defend uh, the Korean War as a defense of a state of the 1950s, as a defense of a state against aggression, supported by the vast majority of the people there. The Vietnam War was, you know, despite a lot of support for, from people in, like, Saigon, most Vietnamese didn't support us. We were trying to prop up the residue of a colonial state, colonial French state, in order to prevent the spread of communism, so we essentially were in an imperialistic role, and it was unjust. Um, so I think the best analogy is the Korean War. And I would say that was certainly justified, and I think most Koreans would agree. Most South Koreans. How about in Iraq? I mean, the, I, I, I remember poll, sorry, I remember polls being cited in the run-up to the Iraq War showing that the Kurds were very much in favor of U.S. intervention. So the, the, does that alone somehow negate the idea of the U.S. acting imperialistically just because you could point to certain maybe snapshots of opinion in these places that well it's not sufficient but it's a relevant it's a relevant consideration i mean the fact that in the 1950s we admitted that if vietnam had a broad election the the ho chi Minh would have been the winner right and we prohibited elections in that country so i think that public opinion is relevant the fact that ukrainians are obviously united is certainly relevant and then this analogy with iraq is okay you may have some snapshot where people were happy that saddam hussein is gone but there was no aggression by Saddam Hussein at that time that we were fighting against. We were the aggressors, essentially. Um, also, my, my memories of the Korean War killed about four million people, uh, including you know incredibly brutal bombing campaigns mm-hmm. by the U.S. I don't know if you're familiar with any of these episodes where they essentially just uh, flattened entire. Uh, well, I'm not civilian defending areas. war. Like if I were defending the Second World War, I'm not defending war crimes like the firebombing of Dresden, for example. But I think, you know, it's the, the Korean War I would characterize as a very plain case of aggression of the North against the South. One of the plainest, in fact, that I think you can you can surmise in in recent history. Like even Stalin was quite hesitant about the uh, level of bellicosity that the North Korean leadership was was exhibiting and tried to, although he did support them, he tried to talk them out of it. Um, so, are, you a, are you a fan I, of the Korean War, Richard? 
You know, it's, um, you know, I may, I may cut off because I'm driving now to something. So um, it may cut off at any point. But uh, I'll say it's hard to know, like beforehand, like which war is going to turn out like Korea and which one is going to turn out like Vietnam. So you say, well, you know, the people in Korea, you know, they support her and the people in Vietnam did not. Like, we, we don't know. I mean, if it works out, we say, oh, we have the support of the people. If it doesn't work out, we say, oh, we didn't have the, you know, we didn't have the support of people. And, and in retrospect, you know, Korea worked out well for South Korea because, I mean, the North Korean regime is, is so horrifying. It's just like, how do you know that it would have worked out like that before? And we don't. We may, maybe we're not, maybe in the 1950s, you can fight a war that, you know, maybe there's some correlation between the brutality with which the Korean War was fought and the fact that the U.S., uh, you know, won or maintained the status quo uh, because, you know, you could do that stuff while, you know, you, could, you, can't, you can't just, like, level everything um, in Iraq. Well, you could, but, you know, not to the, not to the same extent. So, you know, it, it's, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to know ahead of time, like, which war is going to work out, which, like, the Russians, like, everyone thought the Russians would just roll over U uh, Ukraine. So you've got to have a way to think about it without, like, you know, just... Uh, You've got to have a way to think about it that makes sense, like, you know, going into any conflict. You, get, you need a framework. You can't just say this one worked or this one didn't work because often you don't know until after it happens. Well, but, but again, though, like the, the South Vietnamese regime was always tainted by a sort of illegitimacy because it only emerges in response to a ceasefire between French col colonial France and uh, Ho Chi Minh, which, who essentially had broad nationalistic support, even though he was a communist that was... He was supported by non-communist nationalists. And the South Vietnamese regime, in the eyes of most South Vietnamese, there were certainly a large number of people who came to the United States who, who liked the regime and, and, you know, despise the North and despise communism. But I think that, you know, the, the, the vast bulk of scholars would say even in South Vietnam, the uh, large majority of the population was either indifferent or, unsupport or not supportive of the United States. Um, whereas in Korea, that was yeah, very much different. Yeah. There was, so there was poll. Mike Mike talks about um, uh, polls of Kurds in the early days of Iraq. There were That's polls true, yeah. of Iraqis, uh, you know, in the early days of Iraq, of all Iraqis, and they were saying, you know, that there were like a lot of them that supported the U.S. mission, and it was actually believable for like the first year or so. Um, you know, there were the, not even the first year, like the first several months, there was there wasn't much of an insurgency in, in Iraq. You know, it's, so it's hard to. I mean, but these things change, and like things change a little bit, and then the Iraqis started to hate the Americans. Uh, so it's you know it's hard to. Like public opinion changes. I mean, it can go six months a year. It can go from one, you know, one one side to the other. So I wouldn't put a lot of stock into that. It's a factor, but you know, as far as like whether that makes a war make sense or not, you know, I'm, I'm skeptical that that should be like you know a main a main factor. I also don't. I also kind of don't buy this argument that you see recur over time, where you know, if the, the it goes, I'm not in favor of war crimes. Uh, but up in favor of the larger mission. You know, this was used around the My Lai Massacre in Vietnam, um, and, you know, because that was depicted as aberrational and, you know, not reflective of the overall mission and the geopolitical necessity of the U.S. engaging in Vietnam. There's a really great book that uh, had a big impact on me when I read it maybe like six years ago that I would really recommend called Kill Anything That Moves by uh, Nick Terse. And it's... Uh, meticulous uh, examination of how like, the tactics that were associated with my lie as aberrational um, were, were actually uh, systemically ingrained in the entire uh, tactic of the uh, U.S. war effort in Vietnam. So there wasn't this easy separability between these allegedly aberrational war crimes that would occasionally get uncovered and just the, the, the mission itself. And I, I'm not as 
I admit I'm not as familiar with the Korean War uh, in that kind of granular detail, but I, I do know that I've came across even just recently, uh, you know, records of how, for example, uh, the U.S. military uh, na- napalmed an entire island in uh, Korea with no warning to civilians, and this was in 1950, right before MacArthur made his landing. And of course, you, know, you have to also consider the second order effects of a war like. Korea, which is that, you know, it kind of uh, entrenched this sort of militarized post-war posture of the U.S. Um, and, and uh, you know, bolstered these, you know, the so-called military industrial... I mean, the, the reason why Eisenhower warned against the military-industrial complex when he left office in 1961 is because it had gotten so entrenched uh, throughout, but, you know, by, by virtue of its in- involvement in Korea, um, so I, I, I guess I just don't necessarily accept these sort of – I mean I would actually call it simplistic to just assert sweepingly that uh, you know, Korea was a, quote, good war. I'm not, I'm not saying you use that exact phrase. Uh, but that's not really how I, I, I look at it. I mean I think you know, the, the U.S. involvement in World War II was a, tra- a travesty. I'm not saying that I necessarily would have opposed the U.S. entering World War II after Pearl Harbor, but that it even happened at all is a, is a travesty. Um, and so I think, you know, everything ought to be done to avoid these wars, and that's what I see not happening now with the Biden administration. Um, yeah, I don't know if you agree with... Uh, I, I, you might have a problem with Mearsheimer. I think we've discussed it in the past, but I think he was dead on when he said recently that, um, you know, he, he views us still as a massively escalatory stage, and Biden is acting... You know, opposite to what Kennedy did in the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, which is that every policy action he takes, including the one that was just announced today with these long-range missiles apparently on the verge of being shipped out, it, it serves to only escalate the war rather than de-escalate it. Um, so that's always my intu- my uh, kind of just baseline in- intuition as to these conflicts, that, that you know everything should be done to avoid it rather than prolong it, and that's not at all what... Uh, the Biden administration is currently doing. Yeah. So I just, um, uh, quick. So first regarding world war two, I think Pat Buchanan's revisionism is, com- first of all, I think comparisons with world war two and this conflict are deeply irresponsible. Um, I think that they're highly escalatory and false. Well, it's not just me. I mean, but, pe- pe- people, uh, sorry, no, to I'm interrupt. not saying you're doing that. Sorry I'm to interrupt, like, but yeah, go ahead. people who are pro War. I mean, maybe pro-war mm-hmm. is not a term that they would accept in terms of their position right now. But people who are in favor of escalating the U.S. proxy war effort, they are the ones who keep bringing up World War III. I mean, R- no, Richard that's what I'm criticizing. R- I'm criticizing them. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Zelensky is the one who called Henry Kissinger right. uh, Neville Chamberlain. In this context, I'm criticizing them because they're I reviving don't... the quote Lend Lease yeah. Act. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, they're the ones who were invoking the spectrum. Right, but but, I, but I, think, I think either I wasn't clear or you misunderstood me because I'm not – I'm criticizing them in this respect that this okay, is not no. helpful nor is, it, nor is it accurate. But I would say regarding this is a now kind of off, out of scope because we, we agree that this isn't analogous in, in really any sense. But the, I, I certainly reject Buchanan's views of the, of the Second World War in Munich. Buchanan's book completely ignores – he has this kind of – Odd argument that the Holocaust would have been confined to less territory if we didn't in- intervene and Britain didn't intervene. And he completely ignores the genocidal aims of the Nazis th- for Eastern Europe, the, the Untermenschen theory of Slavic inferiority and, and, and so forth. And 
you know, tens of, that's reason why millions of Russian POWs were stabbed to death because of this view that they're racially inferior deliberately. So he claims, it's funny that he claims to be some great friend of Russia and Eastern Europeans and Poles and so on, but, you know, he would have, he would have let them return. And the one point I'd say is I agree with everything you said, Michael, but I just think that, I think that you guys do, a, I'm glad you're part of the conversation because you emphasize issues that are real and others don't, but I think, you don't, just as the other side doesn't cope with our crimes and, you know, all these deaths in Korea and so on, that I think that you guys sometimes fail to cope with the consequences of non-intervention and the, the fact that oftentimes other, the regimes at which, with which we are, um, uh, with which we are at odds, um, are, their intentions are not necessarily, um, uh, even rational in the sense of like, in a sense that we can characterize. Well, okay. I mean, I've heard that point made before. I just think that the U.S. is so radically interventionist, a world superpower, that I'm not sure what I would have to cope with. I mean, it seems like intervention is just the default mode regardless. And it doesn't mean that that every foreign policy action is the invasion of Iraq. Uh, you know, but there are gradations of interventionism short of that. And okay, the US but, is not but, bashful like, at all about examples. constantly doing that every, everywhere in the yeah. world. So, like North Korea, what, blatantly invaded. Where, where, yeah. where is this non-interventionist utopia that I could refer to to see the ill consequences <laughs> of? Well, that's never happened in history because pow- great powers always are highly interventionist. Um, but but maybe it should. I don't. But I don't think it would happen if we stepped out of it. I think you'd have. China and Russia filling the role of the United States, such as what history indicates. But I would just say things like when you talk about the Korean War and U.S. war crimes, things like the fact that this war was started by extremely naked aggression, like among the most in, 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 in as I say, in modern in modern memory, or the fact that there's no coherent way to explain Russia's war aims at this point with NATO expanding as a result of the war. Like it, it, it except insofar as you well, at yes, least partially. Is. Well, I think it's. I mean, if, they, if 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 one of Russia's war aims, and again, I'm not justifying it or defending it, people. No, I'm not saying you are. Yeah, but if one of Russia's war aims is to prevent Ukraine specifically from becoming either a formal NATO member or a NATO de facto member, which it was prior to February, then it still has the means to potentially accomplish that goal, doesn't it? Regardless of what happens with Sweden and Finland. I mean, Sweden and, fin- Sweden, and- Sweden and Finland were not cited in the original war aims of Russia. Okay, but now we're starting to parse a bit, but, but I mean, U.S. troops will be on their border, right? Because they're going to be in NATO. So, I mean, if, if the war aim is you're afraid of a buildup of the United States near border, which I, in the past I told you that makes some sense, then this is not achieved. That is having the opposite effect. Incidentally, I, I just do not accept the argument that Ukraine was imminently part of NATO, it was imminently joining NATO, if, it would have made much more rational sense, in my view, for Russia, if they wanted to do this war thing, to threaten war if Ukraine did it, as opposed to just saying, or if they initiated the process or whatever. Well, I mean, not, not to relitigate this, which I mean, people may have heard me rehearse before, but, you know, <laughs> there's a factual record here. In November of last year, the U.S. officially codified the strategic partnership agreement bilaterally with Ukraine. And included in that agreement was a reference to the infamous 2008 Budapest statement at the NATO summit where it was pledged that NATO would uh, eventually accept Ukraine as a member. That was reiterated as recently as last November. And uh, Ukraine had already been elevated to this enhanced partner status with NATO. So, you know, my reading of when 
Putin uh, made and you know Lavrov made those statements that seemed somewhat noncommittal about uh, Finland and Sweden joining NATO was that they kind of viewed it as not a particularly significant change because Sweden and Finland were already kind of de facto part of NATO regardless. Um, you know, actually Sweden and Finland had the same quote-unquote enhanced partner status as Ukraine did. They already took part in drills with NATO. They had already sort of forged bilateral security arrangements with the U.S. So I, my, my reading of those statements when, you know, it was officially announced that those two countries would seek membership was that it was kind of just Putin and the Russian kind of elite saying that, look, this doesn't make a whole lot of difference in practical terms one way or another. Yeah, I just say and, and regardless, and just regardless have a, have of that, and, regard, yeah. and regardless of that, I mean, maybe that would if Putin had said in his original war aims, that, you know, one thing we're trying to do is prevent Finland from becoming a formal member of NATO. And now as a result, at least in part of the invasion, Finland is becoming a formal member of NATO, then I would agree that Putin's war aims have been undermined. But that wasn't the stated war aim. I mean, the stated war yeah, aim the war was... included denazification and a bunch of incoherent yeah. stuff. But yeah, anyway. Um, yeah, so I, I just think generally there needs to be more rigor and less bias on your side of the thing. And I agree with you that the main, yeah, okay, I'm me, glad you're out there because I agree the mainstream's fucked up. The mainstream is, is, yeah. is crazy. Well, let, me address, let, me, let, me, let, let, let me, let me also address that point because, you know, I hate to just do one of these sort of semi cliched Chomskyan responses, but I do think it holds actually as to my thinking, which is that, you know, I'm, you know, sorry if this means I'm oversimplistic or biased, but I do happen to be, a citizen of the United States. I do happen to have the most familiarity with the United States government and its foreign policy. And therefore, that is where the vast bulk of my attention goes in terms of what my own government is doing. Um, so, you know, if I was a citizen of Russia, I'm sure my orientation would be different. But, you know, through an accident of the universe, I was born in New Jersey. So, I mean, what do you want me to do? Yeah, I just uh, I think that though. First of all, I don't I don't want to get into this, but I, I think that the Chomsky doctrine is very is increasingly flawed as we get into a more globalized world. I don't think there's no validity to it, but I think its validity has been decreasing over time. There is some validity to it, but uh, secondly, I would just rejoin that like you're okay in the sense that you're responsible in the Chomsky sense. You're responsible for the U.S. You know, sending tr- uh, pardon me, saying arms to Ukraine the good and bad of that policy, you'd also be responsible in the Chomsky-Ed sense for the U.S. refusing to send arms to Ukraine, if that's what you think is the right thing. The last point I'll make, and then I'll, I'll, I'll let Ernst and join it, because you guys have been very patient, and I, I'm sorry for taking up so much time. I, I also just have to say I disagree with the idea that Russia is doing great. They certainly have advanced. That's, there's no doubt about that. But I think that if clearly they're trying to take Kiev, and they're not doing that anymore, you know, at least actively. So if Ukraine could limit Russia to taking the Donbass region where there is a lot of support for Russia, um, Mariupol and so on, we would, I mean, that would be um, an outcome where I think we could say with some plausibility, the United States that the shipment of weapons created a better result. Um, if, you know, the final settlement involves Crimea and Donbass rather than an overthrow of the government. Um, but, you, know. you know, possibly. I mean, I would just note that, you know, Zelensky's all over the map, so it's hard to even tell what his position is. Yeah, he's uh, he's, and, he's but, erratic, I agree. But, uh, you know, the head of the military intelligence of Ukraine told the Wall Street Journal last week that 
they are not willing to buckle um, or they are not willing to accept any kind of ceasefire until the Russians are driven out of Crimea. So they're actually expanding their war aims um, beyond the status quo of February 24th. In part, you would have to admit, because the U.S. has opened the spigot and has pledged to indefinitely subsidize their war effort, and then it will, will simultaneously say, oh, it's got to be the Ukrainians who decide their own fate, as if they have like just full, unvarnished agency. That's another cliche that always gets evoked. Oh, you're denying the agency of the Ukrainians. Well, I mean, how much agency do you really have when it's the U.S. who is subsidizing the war? Um, so, I mean, you can make an argument that if they do proceed with those maximalist war aims, and it does result in some kind of offensive in Crimea, which seems like it could be ca- absolutely catastrophic, um, and maybe even be a scenario that could provoke Ru- uh, Russia into using its, uh, you know, potentially a nuclear weapon, um, then this uh, blank check that's been given by the U.S. could uh, be have been extremely harmful in emboldening the, the Ukraine to go even further than it was um, before the war started. And also, you know, and we're going to move on from you because I don't want to... <laughs> I mean, Matthew, I always enjoy our, I always enjoy our uh, colloquies. But um, mm-hmm. one other point about the kind of refusing to grapple with the consequences of non-intervention. Here's something that annoys me about that argument on kind of like a deeper kind of logical basis. You know, an interventionist is somebody who is making an affirmative argument as to why something should be done, right? Whether it's militarily or otherwise. They're saying, here are arguments why we should take this proactive action, right? So the burden is on them to substantiate why it is that their action that they, they're proposing is going to re, uh, result in a beneficial outcome. Whereas if I'm taking a non-interventionist argument, I'm not arguing that anything ought to be done. So the burden of proof is just not on me in the same way that it's on the interventionist. Um, I, because, you know, it, it's not as though I'm demanding that everybody accede to some sort of proactive action. Um, so I think there, you know, maybe that's sort of a subtle point. But I actually think it is relevant in terms of, you know, this, this constant demand that people reckon with the consequences of something when they're not even advocating for an, that anything be done. They're just saying, we're not, I'm not just, I'm not advocating anything. So I just think, the, the, again, the burden of proof is just radically different. Yeah, I, I'm going to go again, 20 seconds, but I, I hope that the, the stance of the, the public stance of the Ukrainians is crazy. I hope that that's just a, uh, a negotiating tactic. If it's true, if it's actually their stance, that would be catastrophic. I hope it's a negotiating tactic. Thank you guys for answering tough, very tough criticism. I really appreciate that. And keep on writing and, and doing this stuff. Okay, okay thanks, Matthew. Uh, all right. Uh, Ernst and Jonah, go ahead. Or, sorry, Ernst, go ahead. And, and Richard, by the way, if you're uh, busy with something, you can don't don't uh, feel like you have to stick around and torture yourself. <laughs> okay, yeah, I'm driving. I'm, I'm getting on the highway now. So, um, okay, yeah, it's been, it's been fun. This might be yeah, actually. It could be sort of uh, um, Richard, adventurous to do a call in from the uh, highways of Los Angeles, which is one of the most perilous yeah, places it's, to it's, be multitasking. It's a little- it's a, uh, it's a pretty, um, you know, it's, it's not the best place to be distracted. So I'm trying to find um, the exit. Um, right so, uh, yeah, I should probably. I actually had a question for Richard. Uh, you know what? Primarily, but okay, go ahead. I'll, tr- I'll try to. If, if I yeah, don't end phone, up like a Reginald Denny. Um, so first of all, I think the guy, <laughs> the guy speaking before me, he is ignoring the fact that 
if they did not intervene, Russia is not showing deterrence and Sweden and Finland would join inevitably. The delta over here is Ukraine joining. Finland and Sweden are invariants because if Russia doesn't show deterrence for Ukraine, where they have strategically accessible routes into the country, there is no way Finland would you know, feel unsafe joining. But um, more importantly, Richard, I'm a huge fan of yours, and I was thinking about what you said, right? Um, you mentioned over here that we don't see many deals happening. I think it's the other way around. So, like, right now, we see Turkey is taking very strong military actions in northern Syria, while mm -hmm. essentially being kind of lukewarm with Russia. We see in Russia, sorry, in Syria, for the first time, an S-300 was fired, but the S-300 is fired in ballistic mode instead of, like, radio lock-on. And, quote-unquote, I don't know if this is an exchange, Israel is telling Germany that it cannot export the Israeli anti-tank missiles to Ukraine. So there seems to be a lot of deal-making happening on the side. And to another point is, you mentioned, uh, like, some guy was talking about globalization. Like, I think this war ends the first derivative being in the direction of globalization. What I mean by that is um, we see BRICS changing. We see a large movement towards autarky in China, in India, in Saudi Arabia, because they're scared of the U.S. sanctions. And I think the people who want to manufacture everything in America may get their first win simply because people do not trust global supply chains, both because of uh, failures recently, but also because of this, you know, sanctions essentially being a risk you don't want to take. Um, but I also have another point I want to throw in this mix while you're thinking about this. And this is um, a synthesis of what I read of yours and Rob K. Henderson's. So in, in India, we have a very interesting form of luxury beliefs where the upper class are oddly anti-nationalistic and very strong consumers of Western American content as a signal of class. And for the first time on my friend's Instagram stories, I am seeing the Indian upper class in favor of colonialism. And by the way, the Pakistani upper class too, because they are for the military puppet regime, which is being erected in Pakistan right now, which harms the Pakistani worker and the poor Pakistani, but is good because it is sufficiently against Ukraine. So there's a very interesting set of deal making and clash of, you know, um, I don't want to say ideologies, but inconsistencies that is happening globally. And I was wondering what you guys think about this. So I don't know, um, uh, Indian, and I mean, thank you for your uh, kind words. I have a lot of fans in India. I mean, it's funny that funny enough. Um, the uh, so the new uh, regime in Pakistan, it, it's you're saying it's less friendly towards Ukraine. It's or it's less friendly. Friend. I'm Ukraine. the guy who sent you the short list of what's happening in uh, that area. Oh, okay, I, re I remember now. Okay, yeah. So he's less friendly towards Ukraine, and the Indian. You're saying the Indians upper classes, the, uh, they they want to be less friendly. The towards Indian Ukraine upper class normally like basically simps for the Pakistani worker. They're like the average Pakistani isn't responsible, just the leadership. But now the Indian upper class is basically wants Pakistan to have inflation, which hurts the worker, because that is the anti-Ukraine is a sign of you know erudition. Hold on, Ernst. Let me just ask a clarifying question because. You know, I'm far from an expert on uh, Pakistan and India either. But, you know, my understanding of when Imran Khan was ousted, he claimed that it was essentially a regime change op by the United States yep. because they were get taking revenge on him for being too friendly to Russia. 
yes. because uh, Imran Khan was actually in Russia meeting with Putin on the day of the invasion, um, and then was cut, then was supposedly got this threat. What he called the threat letter um, from a, I think, was it the American ambassador in Pakistan or somebody in the diplomatic corps, um, basically threatening him on, on behalf of the U.S. So you're saying that now there the um, the the new military regime is even more solicitous toward Russia than Iran no, Khan no, was. The military regime now is very very uh, anti-Russia. They're very pro-Ukraine. So what I'm saying is. Um, I'm saying is the present military regime's policies are hurting the Pakistani worker because they're causing, they're adding to the existing Pakistani inflation a very strong um, lack. So basically, Russia is promising them grains and uh, oil, but without those promises, the inflation is entirely unabated. So if you're an average Pakistani, you probably want the grains and the oil, but the Pakistani military, which controls most of the land and resources, really want American money and in exchange for that, they're happy to take inflation. I see. Yes. Interesting. Okay, so well. okay, that makes yeah, that makes more sense. I was confused by that too because you said first you said it was they were anti-Ukraine. Oh, I might have misspoke. I'm literally writing yeah. on email while talking to you about it. Sorry. Yeah, it's okay. Uh, as, as far as the yeah, the globalization thing, I don't know. I mean, the trends. So just uh, before COVID, um, China signed a um, free trade agreement with like 15, 14 other countries in East Asia called the RCEP. And, uh, you know, I think I think they were all part of it. I mean, I think Japan was part of it, South Korea, I think not in not India. Um, but there was, you know, a move. I think the COVID stuff. You know, I think it, it, it basically made people, I think, crazy. I think made people like irrationally scared of foreigners and like you know always the last um you know the last uh restriction to be lifted is always like about foreigners coming into the country i mean so it's you know it's still ridiculous like you'll have quarantines when you go to other countries countries have i mean no who wants to go to china at this point i mean you look at like hong kong and you know china and, and korea they have masks everywhere i mean so i think it's COVID. you know i, I just uh, heard the other day that um there's a good uh, podcast on NK News. Um, it's on North Korea. Basically, North Korea has not let in like a single foreigner except for like diplomats uh, since early 2020. Um, so that's an extreme case. But basically, um, you know, the, the politics thing, you know, I, 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 you know, I think it's, if anything, that's probably more uh you know, except for the case of Russia, for the case of Russia, I mean, the, the isolation, but even that, even the Russia isolation, I mean, you, you imagine when, when this thing settles down, it's not going to be as extreme because Russia didn't get sanctioned the way that North Korea or Venezuela does it. It's too big of a country and there's too, you know, there's too much business to be done. Um, so I think you may be right on the globalization. I, I'd say my inclination is right now, but I think it's probably COVID. Wait, I want to give you something actually. you will actually fucking love. Oh, wait, Richard, this is for you. I, I was thinking about it. <laughs> okay. So um, basically, you know how America's thing in Taiwan is we can't let TSMC technology get in Chinese hands. Now say TSMC uh, has factories in America. That. Yeah, yeah. Now say uh-huh. TSMC has factories in America, right? For the Civil Rights Act, uh-huh. TSMC, a Taiwanese company, cannot say we won't hire people who have family in the People's Republic of China because that would be a disparate impact there. In other words, the Civil Rights Act in America means America getting TSMC factories is the fastest route for TSMC tech to fall in Chinese CCP hands. <laughs> well, did you hear? Well, they did something similar with uh, the Peter Thiel's company, Palantir. They said you're yep. rejecting too many Asian applicants, even though they like most, you know, they had more Asians than anyone else because you're rejecting too many people from China for potentially being security. Yeah, it's ridiculous. The thing about the civil rights uh, stuff, I mean, people can read my stuff I, on that too. I just it's, think it's, it's a completely beautiful synthesis hard. of civil rights uh, stuff and just interventionism. No. 
which defeat each other. It's just fucking amazing. <laughs> but yeah, you're too optimistic, though. You think you can get, the, you think you can, you can uh, find the contradiction in civil rights law, where the fact is every single thing is disparate <laughs> impact, and so it's completely arbitrary. So everything is disparate impact. They'll, you know, they'll decide what they go after. Well, you know, now you got me thinking because if the conventional sort of liberal or establishment view of the significance of the Ukraine war is right, then it does represent this kind of seismic disruption to the world order. Um, And if the world order was disrupted, you would expect then for countries to be sort of reorienting themselves given Michael, that look new at the Middle East, like reality Syria. and and therefore like striking deals as you as you suggest is now like accelerating i i, I was just going to say that at least from the standpoint of the u.s the main thing that seems to be accelerating from its standpoint is this uh great power struggle posture that it already had basically announced was its new Kind of national security orientation, and you know, and actually under Trump in 2018, the uh, this kind of formal document that is published by the Pentagon every four years um, said that you know we're 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 done with this war on terror paradigm, and now we're in the great power competition paradigm with you know Russia with China, and then like secondarily Russia. Um, so I mean, I think we're now it, that it just means that. In terms of whatever deals the U.S. is striking, it's now all kind of revolving around that, which I think kind of maybe in part explains why Biden was so cavalier in his statement earlier this week um, saying that the U.S. will militarily intervene in Taiwan um, uh, because, again, all all the incentives now militate toward that. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, the weird, the the, the the sort of the the upping the ante on China is very weird and interesting. You know, I, I'm suspecting that is something about that they were expecting China to go more all in with you know being on Russia's side. And the fact that China didn't, you know, I think is, um, you know, I think might have been a signal that oh maybe China is really really cautious. You know, it's sort of almost like the U.S. is saying like if other countries we don't stand up to them they'll become more aggressive. I think some people in China could be thinking you know we didn't like stand up to the U.S. and the Ukraine thing, and so now you know they're becoming. Aggressive. Well, it was admitted in April that the U.S. quote intelligence community put out a leak to different major media organizations, um, essentially warning, you know, and this turned out to be bogus, that the U.S. that China could be supplying military assistance to Russia for use in Ukraine. Um, and then you know, uh, Ken Delanian, who is this basically just spokesperson for the uh, CIA, <coughs> who's, a, who's a journalist for NBC News now. I mean, he's got caught in 2014 basically just um, uh, manu- maneuvering with the CIA over email for, to, like, run drafts by him when he was working for the Los Angeles Times. Um, but, but, he, um, but he then, you know, got a, a, a follow-up leak where the U.S. – these U.S. officials just admitted that they, they invented a story – and then laundered it through the media just as a warning tactic against China to pressure them not to get involved militarily. Uh, I, in, have two things oh, I, mention. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to mention two things. I, uh, wait, wait, I'm sorry. Is, 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 is that is, is, so, there, so that China stuff, the, the, the story about Russia asking China, I, I saw the thing where they admitted like they were you know, manipulating the media with uh, Russia invasion plans and all that. But they admitted that the China supplying Russia stuff was just a CIA, uh, CIA well, they They admitted that that was a component of their information warfare strategy. 
to okay, plant they, that story. They, they didn't say it wasn't. But was it false? Was it the, were they saying it was a false story or was it a true story? I mean, if they're saying that it was just pure information warfare, then yeah. I mean, I, I'm I, I'm interpreting that as an admission that it was false. I mean, they they okay. I I, I think actually I have to look at that at how it was exactly phrased by Delanian. But yeah, I, I, I well, I mean, it was through Delanian. Delanian he interpreted what he was told as an admission that that. Yeah. Warning about but China potentially in, say, involving itself so, militarily in Ukraine was just false. So I saw so I didn't see that story, but I saw a similar story, which was like the, the, the they were saying they were playing mind games with Russia as far as their invasion plans. And I think the, the nature of those uh, stories was basically this is true information, but they're like, you know, they're making it available and like talking about it publicly for for PR reasons. So I, I you know, I would be surprised. It would be funny. I would be I'd be surprised if they're admitting, you know, that this stuff is fake. I think what they would say is, oh, it's true. And we put it out like they're admitting they're leaking, which, OK, they're admitting they're playing with, you know, the, the media and manipulating it. Uh, but they, I think they would still say it's true information. But again, I haven't seen the story, so I'd have to look it up and see. Um, I wanted to float this by you guys because this is somewhat different. Um, I don't most people who are commenting on, you know, the, these things don't really look at econ. But let's just say I know people who are um, in financial markets and what they're predicting right now internally in some places is a mass deindustrialization of Europe because what's happening is uh, you have metal prices which are spiked you have energy prices which are spiked you have inflation which means savings for companies are going down while demand is depressed and when they come out because uh, ECB and the Fed are raising rates loans loan rates are up which means there is not enough cash to you know lend out to these companies in other words, a lot of companies, especially like Germany, where Germany's manufacturing has a lot of like manufacturing startups, they are burning the savings, demand is suppressed, costs are up, and they're not going to, they cannot, the financial market repo rates alone will not allow them to essentially have any liquidity when they get out. And in a weird way, that kind of props up China. Yeah. I'm in. I'm in. I'm in Hollywood now. Russia. Gotta go. Okay. Crazy. I gotta let you guys go. So it's been fun. Thanks a lot. Okay. Uh, yeah. So uh, sorry to Jonah and John Michael if you wanted to interact with Richard, but you'll have to settle for me. Um, at least for these last couple of minutes. Uh, Jonah, you're up. Hey, Jonah? Michael. How are you? Hey, I'm good. How are you? Good. Thanks for uh, thanks for hosting another uh, call. In. Always always appreciated. It. It's my second time on on the show, so it's good to. Uh, talk to you again um well repeat callers get a special prize which is nothing (laughs) um so i I don't mean to change gears back to um gun control um but um i don't know if you're an nba fan and you saw steve kerr's press conference did you happen to catch that I did see it. You know, I am an NBA fan. I find I found myself at least this season to be not quite as interested as I have been in the past. I haven't been following it that closely. I did go to a Nets game earlier this season, though. But yeah, but I saw the the uh, Steve Kerr uh, rant. Right, and so I, I just I have a question about uh, you know he seemed to imply or suggest that you know Republicans were standing in the way of quote unquote common sense gun reform, and that there's some bill on the table that's there to be signed if only, you know, the usual suspects, Mitch McConnell, the other Republicans would just sort of uh, consent to it. Um, So so the question I have for you is that um, are they actually opposed to 
common sense reforms like background checks? Or is, is this bill far more restrictive than what um, than what was represented by Kurt? Well, I don't think there actually is an active bill. I don't think he's referring to anything tangible in terms of like pending legislation. Um, I think, you know, this could be a variety of different interventions. You know, it's in terms of background checks, you know, the whole idea around strengthening background checks in terms of informa- uh, legislation that's been deliberated on in the past um, was that they wanted to close loopholes in the background check system. So, for, like, for gun shows or for private um, transactions. Um, as far as I know, the shooter in Texas purchased his guns legally uh, from just a ordinary gun shop, which would that make him then subject to background checks. So I wouldn't have any effect on this shooter. And so that, that's an argument you hear from Republicans often that, you know, the thing that's actually being so frenetically uh, proposed to put a stop to mass shootings actually would have no effect on these sort of dramatic mass shootings that pop up on our political consciousness every so often. Um, you know, I have seen it argued that the uh, federal assault weapons ban, and of course you could get into like the semantics of what it actually means, uh, what assault weapons actually means, but there was a federal assault weapons ban in place from 2004 to, sorry, from 1994 to 2004, and then it expired with a sunset clause. Um, and it has been argued that although the implementation of that ban probably had no effect just on overall gun violence. It might have had a slight effect on preventing here and there to revive just that that ban that that Bill Clinton signed into law and that George Bush uh, let expire. Um, You know, it's sort of funny because some of the main proponents, and if you look at the history of this, it's pretty interesting, but like Rudy Giuliani was one of the most hardcore proponents of the institution of that assault, uh, federal assault weapons ban in 1994 when he was, you know, a mayor of, uh, I think when he was running for mayor of New York City the first time. Um, and uh, there were a lot of, it had a lot of police support because the idea was, you know, we're taking guns off the streets that could be used against police. Um You know, I, I don't know whether it would have any effect. And to my knowledge, that's not an active piece of pending legislation. So, you know, maybe, maybe Kerr, I mean, uh, maybe I'm misremembering and Kerr was referring to something more specific that I'm uh, not aware of. Um, but it's not like there was like a, there was an active um, bill that's like in a protracted legislative process now in the way that there was after Sandy Hook, actually. I mean, there was, but that was the, that was this, uh, that was only related to background checks, I believe. Um, that was a you know Joe Manchin and I think Pat Toomey um, co-sponsoring a bill that just would have closed a gun show uh, gun show loophole, um, and I'm not sure that even that would have stopped the uh, shooter in uh, in Newtown, Connecticut, from getting his his weapons. Um, so you know uh, what is he talking about in particular? I'm not sure. I think he's just essentially trying to spur or shame Congress into uh, taking action, and of course you know, the ones who are much more reticent about entertaining any kind of gun control related legislation or, or the Republicans. So that seems to be what he was directing his ire at. Yeah. I, I just find that like this, the, the discourse on this topic, it's, it's lacking specifics. Like I'm not really sure, you know, 
can you provide an example of of a of a reform that a specific Republican is obstructing? Um, I, I can't off the top of my head. I, I, I'm <laughs> vaguely familiar with that that proposal in 2013, um, which really would have had the effect of just expanding. Of like uni- the, the, the refrain was universal background checks. Um, so it wasn't really even gun control in the sense of restricting the availability of particular types of guns. It was kind of a compromise, um, kind of low, lowest common denominator legislative solution that they wanted to get passed in the aftermath of the, uh, the Sandy Hook shooting. And, uh, you know, I, I don't even think they even got past the uh, – Maybe they did get past the filibuster, but it was only a handful of Republicans who supported it um, in the Senate. So um, Republicans did stymie that bill in a way, um, and maybe that's what's being referred to. I think there's been some preliminary talk this week about potentially reviving that. Um, so Right. And so just to clarify, that, that bill in the wake of Sandy Hook, that was just with respect to universal background checks. So back in 2011 or 2012 – I guess a block of Republicans opposed that or, or did they oppose that because it was tied to um, a broader set of restrictions? Yeah. So this bill in 2013 was a result of uh, Joe Manchin and Pat Toomey, you know, like moderate Republican, moderate Democrat, quote unquote. Uh, uh, and it was a more limited proposal than other stuff that had been floated. Um, but it basically would have just mandated criminal background checks on all sales um, at like gun shows and on the internet. Um, and I think it even had exceptions for uh, like pri- more private transactions among family members or something. Um, and there are a lot of, there are plenty of states who have this um, in place. Um, and it was just going to be made federal. Um, but yeah, it was. Um, it really was a like a if you're going to entertain any kind of gun reform at all, uh, that probably would have been it. And uh, you know the Republicans were overwhelmingly against it. Um, so again, is that what Steve Kerr is referring to? I'm not sure. I think he was just kind of referring to broadly speaking the, the political intransigence of Republicans uh, to even kind of consider any any kind of gun policy reform. Interesting. So just one one final question um, about um, background checks because. I understand there's a criminal background check uh, or element to it, but but aren't felons already um, prohibited from owning and possessing weapons to begin with? Like, what, what does that add to the um, equation? Well, you know, it depends. It depends on the state. Um, so that that's that's a step. That would be state law. I think you know, largely yes. I mean, that's why they wanted to expand background checks, right? So c- people with a violent criminal record could not then go to a gun show. And purchase a, uh, a you know a powerful you know semi-automatic weapon, um, but the thing is you know the very very few uh, if we're talking about mass shootings and maybe maybe the policy is justifiable irrespective of mass shootings but at least if we're talking about mass shootings 
the vast, vast majority of the perpetrators didn't have a record that would have precluded them from making a legal purchase, right? right? Exactly. Um, including the, including the, including the ones uh, just you know the one this week in Buffalo. I mean, they did, they didn't have a criminal record that would have prevented them from getting the purchasing the weapons. Um, so it's kind of uh, you know it's. Uh, it's something you know. One, one thing that bothers me is that okay, so maybe the policy is warranted on some level that doesn't have anything necessarily to do with mass shootings. But if it's always proposed in reaction to mass shootings, there's sort of like a disconnect because yeah, no, it wouldn't have the effect of reducing the likelihood that these kinds of events are going to happen. Um, so. It kind of there's some like a it doesn't really follow logically if with this being a reaction just to the mass shootings again it could follow logically if what you're saying is we want this policy just as a baseline standard um, but you know so what happens if they implement universal background checks and then another 18 year old with no criminal record gets a gun and shoots up a school I mean. Did the policy fail, or was the policy not even tailored toward that purpose in the first place? You know, it's kind of a quandary. Do you think it's politically feasible that the that the background checks could go beyond? I mean, because if anything, like the criminal record doesn't really tell you a whole lot. I mean, they should go into mental health records, school records, because oftentimes with these perpetrators, there are all sorts of red flags at, at school. Like that would probably be far more informative and whether or not um, the potential buyer has this um, has a criminal record in their background. But that, that would never pass, right? You think that's ever possible where it could be far more expansive than just a basic criminal background check? Or that's a type Well, these other laws called red flag laws that you know, cer- certain states have where it goes beyond just criminal history. And if, like, for example, you have a mental health uh, episode or, like, you're involved in some kind of domestic violence dispute that may doesn't rise to the level of, of a criminal charge that gets entered into a system and then can get uh, you know pop up on the on this uh, registry and then uh, prevent you from making a, a weapons purchase. Um, and my best recollection of that when it's been entertained by Congress is that Republicans have been almost maybe not universally opposed, but you know. Uh, significant majority of Republicans have been opposed to that as well. Um, You know, I think uh, in terms of whether something is going to happen legislatively now, I mean, I kind of doubt it. You know, uh, we're in, we're gearing up, especially because you have like a lot of uh, Republican primaries happening at the moment for Congress um, where, you know, they don't want to be outflanked by a challenger who's saying, you know, uh, this this incumbent Republican congressman has capitulated to the liberal gun grabbers or whatever. Um, right. uh, and, you know, there, there have been even more shocking, you know, mass shootings in the past where it wasn't sufficient. And when uh, Republicans had fewer, um, uh, ha- had fewer members in Congress, um, you know, for example, 2000, uh, 2013, after Sandy Hook, and then you know Parkland after Parkland 2018, this was discussed, and nothing came of it. Obviously, there was a Republican president, and so it was different. Uh, you know, I just I just strongly doubt that um, really much will come of this, but who knows? 
Yeah, I think you're right. Um, well, Michael, I appreciate uh, your time. All the good talking to you. All the best. Enjoy your evening. Take care. All right. Thanks, Jonah. And uh, last up, John Michael. Apologies in advance if you had been desperately hoping to uh, have an exchange with, with Richard, but we didn't want him to get into a fatal car crash. And, no, no worries, man. Um, yeah. So, yeah, thanks, Michael. Um, I'm a big fan of yours. Um, when I, as I started getting into alternative media and independent media, I've been finding um, great journalists like yourself, and I just want to thank you for your work. And Thanks. everything you do. It's my first call in, so I'm a little nervous, but uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll keep her short and sweet here. Um, low, low, so, which is a very low pressure environment. So okay, awesome. Don't get too hung up. All right, right on. Um, so yeah, so you know, I was listening. I was listening to Jimmy Dore podcast. I love your appearances there, uh, his show, and they were talking about this, this the the recent mass shooting. And, you know, they related a lot to foreign policy and kind of its correlation. Um, I re- like I really they brought up your tweet about, um, you know, the bo- the Bowling for Columbine, the Michael Moore movie and certain American pathologies, maybe American. What's the word I'm looking for? Like mental pathologies or mental illness that, I, in my opinion, seems to be skyrocketing in the last decade or two seems like everyone and their uncle's got a therapist yeah <laughs> or seen a therapist and um you know there's a new mental illness coming up every day and it made me think about how foreign how foreign policy has affected um the american public because i think in general the american public is is in the whole anti-war but we get propagandized into these conflicts um, to support them for whatever reason, and then and we end up domestically and in terms of our domestic poly- policy and economic policy, worse off for it as the average. Or talking about, I'm referring to the average American. So, you know, the, and I'm curious about like how this. When did the history of American mass shootings really begin, and if that has any direct correlation to? What I'm seeing as the utter abandonment of the government, you know, you could argue started with Reagan, you could argue started with, you know, whoever, um, Clinton maybe, but like the correlation between these mass shootings and um, and that abandonment either by ramping up imperialism and foreign policy intervention in other countries, um, warmongering, and and then that that detrimental effect on this American psyche as as especially veterans who are coming home and then maybe raising families and then um, as they say in the Bible even you know the sins of the father will affect the son or passed off to the son and it just kind of it just kind of steamrolls you know shit rolls downhill and I'm curious what your thoughts are on on that line of thinking yeah, you know, Richard and I talked about this a bit earlier. I don't know if you heard it, uh, you know, toward the beginning of our call-in today. Um, and I think it is probably true that trying to posit some sort of correlation between U.S. foreign policy and mass shootings on just a broad level can be a bit tenuous because there are so few mass shootings and they're so statistically rare that it could be hard to really extrapolate anything firm from them. At the same time, you know, the reason why I brought up the Michael Moore movie 
is because he did posit this theory uh, after Columbine. Um, and, you know, he mentioned the, you know, Kosovo War, which was at its peak on the very day that the Columbine shooting happened in 1999. And so he was suggesting some kind of connection there in terms of like this, this predilection toward violence that might ingrain itself into the American psyche as a result of this just constant, uh, you know, militarism that, that the, uh, you know, the public is conditioned to accept and, and tolerate. Um, you know, I think where it can get more tangible in terms of drawing a connection is when you look at specific episodes of these mass shootings. And I mentioned one earlier of you know, where there was this, there was this mass shooting in, in California in 2018 that, a, uh, you know, that was committed by an Afghanistan veteran who uh, was reported to have PTSD and to have become very isolated and was uh, you know, financially in, in, a, in a bad place and um, you know, just kind of had a downward spiral. And then you know, when, he, he, when he did the shooting, he said, you know, I have nothing, you know, this is just something to do. I have nothing really else to live for, for so why not? Um, so when you do have this kind of influx, I mean, obviously the vast, vast, vast majority of veterans are not going to ever do anything like this. But, you know, given how common it is to undergo PTSD for, for veterans, especially if they've seen combat, and you know, there were multiple members of this guy's battalion in Afghanistan who were killed, um, then you know, a certain percentage of those guys are going to snap. And then a, a smaller percentage, but enough where you could expect to see occasional instances of mass violence like this are going to take the extreme step of even you know, doing a mass shooting, especially if they've been trained on using weaponry in a, in a war uh, setting. You know, the... the the mass shooting that for the longest time really colored American perceptions of this phenomenon was in uh, 1966. Um, and you should look up this on Wikipedia if you're interested uh, because it's, it is pretty interesting. But sure. Um, but it was in Austin, Texas at the University of Austin where this guy uh, went, on, went up onto the clock tower and basically would just indiscriminately uh, shot people sniper style. Um, and um, I think I don't, much, I don't remember exactly how many people were killed. But I think something like maybe twenty. Um, but for the longest time, that was really seen as a really aberrational, just freak event. I, I think it is true that uh, in the past uh, maybe fifteen, twenty years, and then there have been others. Like there was a there was a, a massacre at a McDonald's in. Um, in California, I think in the early 90s. Um, but there is something sort of unique to today. Maybe it has to do with, I don't know, the internet or social media where you have like this, the, the meme of a mass shooting going around. Um, where, <laughs> yeah, and um, you know, in, terms of, in terms of mental illness, um, you know, it sort of just depends on the, on the shooting. I know that maybe that's sort of a, Really, not a not a uh, it's sort of a glib answer, but for example, with the with the Buffalo shooter, he put out a manifesto that clearly spelled out what him his aims were, right? Yeah, and he actually they? went out of his way to affirm that he was not mentally ill and he was making this decision to commit this act on his own, you know, mental volition. And you know, so um, whereas I think actually this guy in Texas might have 
might have been a little bit more mentally crazy. Um, there was a report that he, sh- you know, would show up places having uh, uh, cut up his face just to kind of, I don't know, get a reaction or something. Now, I mean, can you can you connect that all to foreign policy? I'm not sure. I just think you know the the, the U.S. For, U.S. foreign policy has all kinds of distortive effects domestically, whether it's bringing in tons of veterans, a percentage of which are going to get unhinged, or it's just kind of making militarization just the norm, um, yeah, sure. and and kind of just making uh, fostering this again just larger predilection toward violence. Again, that's harder to establish empirically. Um, but I think it should, all, it should at least be entertained. Um, it should at least be considered if somebody has a decent argument. But you know, my problem is that today, inevitably, after these shootings, it, it all comes down to you know, gun control versus no gun control. You know, pretty much nothing else is really even contemplated as a relevant factor. And I think that really is a, um, is a uh, – oversimplified shortcut to like discussing, you know, why it is that these events are so prevalent. I agree. I mean, I'm, I'm totally open to the argument that maybe there are too many guns. I'm a, I'm a two way supporter. I think I believe in people having the right to, uh, to, to have a gun. Um, I don't care if it's a, a fucking M1, a, you know, a giant machine gun or whatever, or a bazooka. I mean, I think, Honestly, I, I'm I'm open to that idea, but I'm also open to the argument that maybe too many guns in America. It's almost like yeah, someone made the point earlier. It might have been Ernst or um, or Jonah. I think it was Jonah. He they said that like um, oh shit, I'm blanking. Um, they don't know you know they don't know why these people need so many guns in their house their house, and it's almost like that that. Uh, to be a nerd and steal quotes from Marvel from Vision is that the, the power invites conflict and it's almost like they are preparing for something but they can't really articulate what and so maybe that almost it almost kind of like puts them in the mindset to kind of always be on guard so maybe too, you know, too many guns might be a bad thing in the US uh, but you know I don't know and to push back on one point you made I think you know, on that same Jimmy Dore segment he he, they pulled up a stat that like to this day like some 230 mass shootings mass shooting being defined as where there are three or more victims I don't know if that means victim means dead or injured and dead but there's been 230 mass shootings this year alone so I don't think it's as uncommon as we're meant I think they just I think the media just grabs the ones that are going to be most useful in terms of partisanship and that all that bullshit. Yeah, I mean, I, I see. The, I, I know what kind of stats you're talking about. I think sometimes those stats can be a little bit misleading, mm-hmm. where something is characterized as a mass shooting if you know it's just like say some domestic incident where two people get injured and that that becomes a mass shooting. I think when when you're when you talk about mass shootings, most of the time at least in terms of the popular consciousness, what's being referred to are these very extravagant, shocking mass shootings where it's just yeah. you know, a guy opens fire in this random place. And, you know, those are genuinely shocking because it's just in this random environment where you wouldn't, under any normal circumstances, expect a shooting to occur. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, there is sort of a fuzzy line between mass shootings as a phenomenon and just general gun violence as a phenomenon. Sometimes they're conflated, I think, to make mass shootings seem more common than they really are. Um, But I I kind of agree with you overall in the sense that I have sort of mixed views on this as well. I don't have a a firm conviction one way or another about the utility of gun control. Um, Number one, I think one thing that gun control proponents often um, gloss over is that in order to enforce gun control, you need a lot of like police intervention. I mean, you need to arrest and charge people for possessing an illegal gun and throw them in jail, right? Um, you need, you need to more guys use guns. You mean... <laughs> yeah, I mean, you need to you need to use the criminal justice system to enforce this policy, which could have other second order effects that might not be seen as particularly pleasant. Um, 100%. I always thought that the, the 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 even the phrase gun control suggests like this desire to control that I kind of have a visceral instinct to not particularly like. Uh, I, I, on, on the other hand, you know, I, I mentioned earlier this um, federal law that was in place for ten years between 1994 and 2004, when certain types of um, you know quote unquote assault weapons were proscribed. And I don't know. I mean, was the United States this authoritarian dystopia, according to the Second Amendment people, during that ten-year span, where you know, because a, a handful of certain types of guns were not publicly available? I mean, I, th- I think you know, there could be a tendency to exaggerate on the on the pro-gun side as well. Um, no, so, I agree. My families yeah. are all big Republicans, and they, you know, they went through the whole when Obama was, and I was eighteen when Obama. Um, first got into office and I just kept always to hear my mom and dad, oh, they're going to take our guns. Well, that ended up not happening. So I, I, they tend to enter into hysterics once, once the word, just the phrase gun control gets bantied about on, on mainstream media. They, you know, they start to freak out. Oh, they're going to take our guns and no, yeah, yeah. they're not. And that's so also used as like a marketing tactic. I mean, it's used as a political tactic among Republicans to kind of just generate frenzy and, votes for themselves, but it's also used by gun manufacturers to entice potential customers, saying, look, look, you, know, you better act now and get your guns, or else you know, Obama and Hillary are going to you know, take them away soon. So I, you know, I think that's kind of Touché. silly. I mean, nobody really advocates gun confiscation, other than Beto O'Rourke, who actually did overtly advocate for it in, 2000, in the 2020 presidential campaign, but he's sort yeah. of an anomaly there. <laughs> All right, uh... Cool. Thank you, man. Sir, I thank it. you for uh, joining in and going to end that it there. Awesome. Thanks, everybody, for uh, listening as usual, and uh, we'll do it again very soon. All right. Have a good night.